You're listening to episode 153 of the Comics Pals. We're a group of comic book journalists and friends who record a podcast together because we don't talk enough about comics in our daily lives. <laughs> Guys, I have bad news. What's that? The Joker movies radicalized me. <laughs> I don't think we can see this movie. But what's the news? I'm becoming a wild clown, man. Oh, I thought you were going to say you're becoming an incel. Oh, so you've converted from a wild buffoon man. Okay. Oh, Got I get it. it. Yeah, I think I'm becoming uh, Batman's famous nemesis, Pennywise. He 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 ha 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 he he he. See, this is the trouble with you, Phil. You you just come in with these weak bits. You know, it's like let's let's let's, let's kick <laughs> it to you a guy. See who... a pencil? I'll make it disappear. Well, <laughs> see, the trouble with Phil and the trouble with love hey. are not the same. Because, Phil, you can punch in the face. And the man to do that, the man to save us all from Phil and his corniness is my man, the hardest working man in comics, Mr. Victor Dandridge. Welcome. That intro Woo! was the greatest thing I think I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Without being, like, forewarned what was going to happen, I'm just like, where where are we going with this play right now? <laughs> this is brilliant. So, here, I almost chimed in our, a couple times. This was fantastic. We never know where we're going, right? Because, like, Phil takes off. He, he goes with the plane. Uh, and then as it's crashing, Sean has to just kind of like course correct really quick. He's like, you know, we're, we're not gonna we're not gonna smash into the floor. Oh my god! Did you is that scripted though? Because like the no. way you guys no. just kind of jumped in, y'all are definite friends. Like there is no because like everyone had like a certain perspective and just hit like perfectly. Wow! Thank you. Oh my god, that was amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's basically we we use the opening of the show as kind of our weekly improv workshop, and you know, sometimes it lands, sometimes not. I'm taking this plane straight down. <laughs> well played. Well played. So <laughs> many of you that are listening may have seen Victor in a bunch of different places. Uh, he's always at conventions. I, I don't know if I've I've been to very few conventions that Victor wasn't at. Um, I mean, then, you make it sound like I hate my home. <laughs> <laughs> this is our first homeless guest. Yeah, this is, I just live in the convention market. <laughs> He's one of the classic convention hobos you read so much yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you, that's the real artist alley. That's what that is. <laughs> oh my god! Wow. Uh, I love I I love the idea of you just like traveling across the nation with all your books in like a spindle. You're yeah. like riding on. You're jumping on the back of trains to get to the next convention. You won't believe the story I heard at the last convention. There were biscuits there. So uh, he's also. You've probably seen him in a picture with someone famous because he's always moderating the uh, the Wizard World events where they have the 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 you know the celebrities up there. He's famous for moderating those. Uh, also, of course, a comic book writer. Uh, the Trouble with Love, uh, Never Too Late, which is coming soon. The Samaritan, uh, just a bunch of different stuff on that front. You create comics. Just so many different things. A podcaster. Uh, you make me all, sound like really busy. <laughs> you're the hardest working man in comics. Man, when you say it like that, I definitely, uh, I might have earned that title. 
<laughs> when you when you just itemize it all like that, you know, it's like shoot, maybe I should sleep more. What what is sleep? What is that? I don't even know what that looks like. <laughs> and we're lucky enough that he's joining us here today. And again, you may have actually seen him with us, or at least me, because Victor and I have done a couple of interviews that are actually on our YouTube page right now from different conventions that we've mutually been at. Uh, we were able to sit down and chop it up about all kinds of things. And we're going to do that here now on the podcast for the first time, which feels so weird because we've known each other for a few years. It's been some years, man. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Uh, are you going to be at New York Comic Con? Because we are. Oh, I'm definitely going to be at New York Comic Con. So nice. we can cut it up some more. Absolutely. Awesome. And if you're listening and you want to hang out with us, uh, we're going to be there. Victor's going to be there. Come say hello. If you want to reach out to us and find out how you can find us at the show, uh, well, first of all, while we're there, you can look for our shirts. Uh, we're hard to miss because they are, you know, they do have our faces on them. Um, but if you want to reach out and speak to us before we get to the show, you can do so by finding us on all podcast hosting platforms. We are at the Comics Pals. We are at the Comics Pals wherever your social media is sold. You can write to us at the Comics Pals at gmail.com. All of those things are free to do, and they help us out a lot more than they cost you. Make sure that you're liking, subscribing, leaving us those five-star ratings. They help us out so, so much. If you do so, we'll shout you out on the air. So uh, if you want to interact with the pals, those are the ways to do it. Now, I want to get in with you, Victor. I've been looking forward to this. Uh, You were gracious enough to share the trouble with love and never too late with us. The trouble with love has been out. Um, for a while now, and I want you to tell us a story of sort of how these books correlate because there is definitely a specific interaction between both books and sort of how they establish the Vantage in-house universe, I guess. So The Trouble with Love first came out in 2012. Um, Ironically, it's the third book to be released or third title uh, from the imprint when it was actually the very first title that I wrote when I decided to start Vantage and House Productions. Um, but it just took a lot longer for the production to to happen. Um, shout out to Harold Edge, who did a phenomenal job uh, on the on the line work for that one. He was also yeah. like doing Dinah Girl at the same time. So that's part of why it took oh, wow. so long to come out. But yeah, um, that I mean, we did we had such a great time working on that project. And it's one of the things like I, I like to share is the beauty of the internet. We were eight pages in before Harold and I ever met face to face. Like it, it's crazy. Like it was at uh, New York comic con that we actually physically met and we had already started, you know, um, a good third of the book was already done um, before we actually did that. Um, so in this book, we have Apex Prime, who is an analog of Superman. Um, I love Superman as a character. Uh, it's, you know, the death of Superman is what got me into comics. So I love playing around with those, you know, archetype uh, setups. But it kind of dawned on me, you know, during the course of figuring out this story that we've never seen a story where Superman um, cheated on anybody. Like, and it's kind of weird to say that, but like... You know, all the LLs that he loves in his life from from Lana Lang to Lois to was it Lori Lamaris? Like they all kind of break up of sorts before he moves on. And it kind of came to me where it was like, well, if Superman did this this cheating faux pas, which seems to be one of the few social, you know, uh, bad moves that you can make and everyone agrees that it's bad. 
Um, you know, there's there's hardly ever any sort of thing that that shows someone being a cheater and it's okay. Like Breaking Bad made selling drugs okay. You know, The Wire made being you know a hood you know like character okay for so many people but in no way shape or form has anyone made a movie where you're like i get bitches and like that's that's cool like no one <laughs> no one has done that um so i want to know is it possible to like really show a character that stepped outside of their you know commitment and still maintains being a hero you know um what started this story um interestingly enough is an affair um i was married and I got to, I had a quarter life crisis. That's what I call it. Um, I was questioning everything that I was doing. And I, I went to my ex-wife and was like, look, this is how I feel. And she couldn't quite understand where I was. It wasn't where her head was at. And of no fault to her, like we were, we were high school sweethearts and we had grown apart. You know, it was kind of one of those situations where as we were getting older, and even though we were parents, we weren't the same people who we were when we first fell in love. And so what does that mean for us? And being that I'm asking questions that she wasn't prepared to even consider, let alone answer, I tried to figure out what I needed to do to make myself happy. Um, Long story short, that culminated into an affair. And things kind of went to a place where, you know, it, we needed to separate and we needed to, you know, move about our lives separately because they weren't moving together as it was then. And I knew my sons would have questions. And that's really the point of the trouble with love is to explain to my sons where my head was and and to firmly say that it wasn't up my behind. Like it it wasn't that I was looking for something that I needed. And, you know, without any sort of finger pointing, your mom couldn't give it to me. It wasn't, it wasn't in her. It wasn't where she was in life. She just couldn't do that. And I had to figure it out. Did I do it the right way? Arguably no, but I had to do what I had to do in order to find this thing. And if I didn't find it, you know, who knows how bad things could have gotten or who knows where we would be right now. And more than anything, not to justify my actions, but to make sure that you understand that sometimes we don't know the right way. You know, we've got to try things. We've got to, you know, take stabs at stuff and see if it works. And um, yeah, I wrote this. Let's see, my wife and I, we split up in... Let's see, we separated in 2009. This book came out in 2012. Um, The culmination of it happened about maybe a year or two ago where my oldest son, um, you know, we we finally had that talk. He was like, Dad, what happened? I'm like, oh, (laughs) guess what? I got a book for you to read. And he sat down and he read it and he came back. I mean, tears in his eyes. He's like, this book has been around for years. He's like, you mean to tell me you wrote this then to explain this to me now? And I was like, yes, I always figured that you would have this question and I wanted an answer and I didn't want it to look like I was just making something up. You know, I literally took the time to think about it and tell you how I felt, where I was. And this book is that presentation. So is this, is this autobiographical in a sense that when you met your second partner, you saved her from a, a, a missile that you froze with your breath? Listen, um, it, it, yes and no. Uh, the missile is a metaphor for no. Uh, <laughs> no, it, it was. It's it's really one of those things where the the superhero aspect of it. I really wanted to bring in um, in a very big major way. Like, how do you take a character of Superman stature and and introduce him to somebody um, 
randomly, regularly. You know, it has to be something of a uh, sort of, you know, catastrophic event. So that was what that setup was. Um, and then what the subtleties of it all are in, in this life that he's lived as he's this superhero, his wife at the time, Melissa, has become so... Um, I don't want to say lackadaisical, but so used to this life that it does not affect her in the same way anymore. Um, and despite him being like this super person, he's still just a regular guy. So sometimes he needs a pat on the back. Sometimes he needs someone to understand the the depth and the the struggle of what he's doing as a superhero. And she just couldn't quite understand that at that time. But Angie, who was a police officer, could she you know understands putting her life on the line she constantly is out there on her own trying to make the world a better place and so there's a simpatico there of of characterization and understanding and they get each other in a way where things kind of make sense um you know my lady now at the time she was getting out of a long-term relationship that kind of had a, a bad twist to it and she too was trying to figure out who she was, where was she going to go? What was going to happen with her? And so it was kind of that, that, like I said, simpatico of ideas. We were both people who were trying to figure out what was next for us. And that's kind of how we came together was, you know, we were friends. We had been friends forever. Like literally her mom was my preschool teacher. Like that's how long I've known her. So it becomes this thing where you're like, you know, what, what do we do? Um, I have this question, you have this question, let's figure this out together. And obviously when you have, um, you know, that sort of truth, it breeds intimacy. You know, when you, when you admit to someone that you can't, that you're vulnerable and they say, I am too, you can't help but look at that person a little, you know, rosier, a little nicer, get a little closer because you've expressed your most vulnerable state and they've shared the same and not taken advantage of it. So, you know, that's kind of, that's that's part of that whole thing. That's part of what I was trying to tell my kid was, you know, sometimes you're going to be in a place that's not great. And the person who you feel comfortable enough to admit that to and then reciprocates, that's a very important person. No matter where, you know, your other commitments are, that person is important. Where where were you headspace wise when you wrote this? Like when when you came up with this impetus for this idea, was it in the in the fog of it all, or what? Were you on the other side and you were able to reflect on it? No, no, no. I was definitely on the other side. Definitely on the other side. Um, what's interesting though is like the the line that gives it its name, "The Trouble with Love," um, was a line that I had come up with. God, like more than 10 years before I actually wrote the story. And so I didn't have a story connected to it. I was, you know, working retail and it was a lazy Sunday and I had this line. It was the trouble with love is you can't punch it in the face. And I was like, oh my God, it's such a great line because you can't fight love. When you really feel it, you can't fight it. I was such a, you know, young romantic and, and idyllic. I was 18. Like, what did I know? I knew nothing. Um, but I, it just kind of stuck in my head. I was like, that's such a great, honest statement I don't fully get it. You know, I don't I haven't lived enough to fully put something behind that. But once all of this happened, I had something to talk about because then I understood it. I had fallen in love and there was nothing I could do about it. It was it wasn't even something I was trying to do. You know, I, I wasn't looking to do it. It's something that was real. And when it's real, the question becomes, which is more important, how you truly feel or what you've promised to feel? for however long, you know, um, the, the correlation that I give to people is like, you know, if you, if you pledge to be a pacifist, 
that's a commitment. You've made this statement that, you know, I'm, I'm never going to raise my hand in anger to anyone. It's wrong to hurt people. But what happens if someone purposefully hurts your child? Now, in that moment, if you feel the rage and you feel the intensity and you act on it, yes, you're giving up your commitment of pacifism. But who can really blame you if the feeling was genuine? If it wasn't just about philandering and, you know, oh, I'm just about to get me some of this. I'm about to give me some. If you were truly motivated by real emotion, can you say it's wrong? You know, that's the question. That's the hard part. It's easy from the outside to look at it and be like, oh, of course, cheating is wrong. But now I've given you a circumstance that's not just about the sex. It's about emotion. It's about feeling and connectivity. Now it's different. So I want to I want to use that to bring up what was my favorite line in the book, um, which I think I love that you have a favorite line. I'm sorry. Let me just tell you that right now. (laughs) Thank you for that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, So there was uh, a line that said, because there are a few good things you have to lie about. Oh, yes. Yes. So I think that's kind of the other side of of what of what you're talking about here. Right. Is and, and I think, you know, you said yourself, right. Like, did I go about it in the right way? Like, maybe not. So how did. How does that complication kind of like inform this work and and what you're talking about, right? In terms of it being this um, this thing that it was not malicious, right? Um, and that comes from a place that's earnest and real, um, but there is this this baggage attached to it that are other people's feelings, right? And this other life that you had established that you had to, you know, um, you know, uh, blow up to move forward. It it comes into this notion of intentions are irrelevant. And, and I've said this many times to people where just because you intended something to happen a certain way, or you didn't intend something else to happen a certain way, doesn't stop it from actually having occurred that way. And it's so important for people to recognize that even when you say, well, I didn't mean for that to happen. That's not even necessarily what you should apologize for. It's the act of it happening. So, you know, what you intended is so secondary and so, you know, artificial, it doesn't matter, especially when there are times when you're doing something where innately, you know, that you shouldn't do it, no matter what your actual intentions are, you know, um, how many times have we heard people, you know, say something mean and or bitchy, and their whole argument is that, well, it's the truth. But you know that it will hurt somebody. No matter how true it is, you're still stepping out to do something that you know will hurt someone. Those are the things that we don't we don't balance very well. We try to justify. We don't accept unto ourselves and say, you know what? I did this thing. I knew you were going to feel this way about it, but I needed it. So, yes, I'm, I'm sorry that you feel this way, but I'm, I'm not going to take it back. That's an honest statement. You know, I think that's where you deal with the full range of, of humanity. It's like um, <laughs> my my sons are teenagers. Um, I'm going to treat them very differently when it comes to dating than I will my daughters. And everyone's like, well, you're a hypocrite. And I'm like, yes, you're right. Now what? And they're like, well, are you OK being a hypocrite? Yes. In this regard, I absolutely am. I am being honest about my full range of emotion here. And in no way, shape or form, am I trying to make myself out to be a better man because of it? I'm being honest about the negative monster that I know I can be. This is me being honest about who I am all the time, no matter what. So there it is. You know, um, that was the moment that I thought was the most honest for, you know, Tom. He was like, look, there, I should have known right then and there 
the moment I lied about this thing, there was no good that could come out of it because I shouldn't have to lie about something that's good. You know, that's how I feel. But how ironic is that from a superhero? Superheroes lie all the time. They have secret identities. They they hide who they are. They they lie forever, you know. So, and again, it's for them trying to do something good. It's such a very ironic statement from a superhero to say that because they they do it all the time. I'm sorry, I got a little Watchmen like breakdown on that one. No, no, no. that's what that's what I want. <laughs> I I am loving. So I loved it when I read it, and then I loved it again when I read it uh, last night for this. And I'm loving it even more now that you're talking about it because that's so um, it's so honest and so reflective of the real world. And I think that like the real world, comics tend to sort of present an idealized version of the characters. You know, um, you use Superman as an example. Superman is who everyone would like to be. And I think especially in the social media age, uh, we present ourselves like that. You know, we present our lives like that, our families, our everything. And I know people who are straight up lying, you know, um, on, on social media. They're lying about what their family's life. You get close enough and you realize, wait a second, this is not right. And so this comic was refreshing for me because it's like, oh, wait. This is a hero who's also a real person who also makes real mistakes, not just the the mistakes that they like to show us like Spider-Man, like, you know, he'll be he'll be late to work or he'll, you know, he'll he'll miss out on a date with a girl, you know, and it's like, oh, I'm a screw up. No, you're actually a superhero who was late to a date. It's not that serious. This is something with implications. And you're also putting yourself on front street by saying, hey, man. This was what I also lived through. And so you're doing it in an honest way, but you're also calling into question like, all right, yeah, you could judge this character, but also think about yourself. And also, he's a superhero. He lies every day. Is that okay? What's the line? I just I just like that. I like that because it, it forces a conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that was um, a big push for what uh, The Trouble with Love was ultimately supposed to bring to the table is conversation. You know, it's not a set answer one way or the other. Um, you, you have to look at it for yourself and make that decision by yourself. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and maybe you don't end up changing people's minds, but at least they're, they're thinking about it. And I think that's cool. And that's I all that matters, man. If, if I get you to pause, I've done my job. Right. And, and I don't want people to think that that's the only thing that the book presents because though that is the story, the artwork is fantastic. Uh, I, I love the dialogue. I think um, Harold, Har- Harold, right? Harold Edge. Uh, he did he did a great job um, presenting this 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 story. Um, and I love the fact that never too late, which is not out yet, so we're not going to spoil anything. No, no, no. You can spoil it. It actually the first issue dropped in March. Okay. People can get it, have been able to get it, have read it. So let's spoil away. Let's tell it all. Okay, cool. Perfect. Um, so Never Too Late is is basically the, the, the continuation of Trouble with Love. And I love the fact that it seems like you're starting a, a, a much bigger story, which I'll let you, you know, describe how you want to. But you're, you're, you're starting this much bigger story and it starts with something that's so 
I don't want to use the word small because it 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 you know it, it it implies that this is like a tiny thing, but in the grand scheme of the entire universe, it is small, right? Um, but I love that it has such huge implications. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> in, in order to talk about Never Too Late, I have to spoil the biggest twist of the Trouble with Love, and <clears throat> that was a very interesting sort of point um, between my ex-wife and I, uh, who is still very much alive. And it, it was something that really kind of I got called into question from a friend of hers that said that I was throwing her under the bus with this book. And basically what, what happened was with The Trouble with Love, the ex-wife, Melissa, <clears throat> gets so caught up in her own heartbreak that she becomes a pseudo an unfit mother to the son. She dwells on the fact of her heartbreak and never gets over it. Um, to the point where she is is projecting her heartbreak to her son and not necessarily telling the full spectrum of what all happened. She was just dealing with how she felt. And and that does happen. You know, um, there were aspects of that that I definitely, you know, felt coming from my ex-wife. Um, you know, friends of ours, you know, you know, made choices and, and we parted ways because of it. And <clears throat> there were things that I knew that they did not know. Um, what was not... I was never interested in trying to dog her or, or put her out there and say, well, did you know this happened or this? That, and it wasn't about that. It was recognizing that in her hurt, this is where that can go. This is what happens when you know you get hurt. Hurt people hurt people. So that's a real statement to me. Um, the son, John, after years and years of hearing how bad his father was and the fact that his father wasn't there to defend himself um, creates like this whole little notion of, of, you know, ire and, and bitterment, right? Like, I mean, he was definitely bitter towards his dad because he's like, you left us, you know, that's his, that's his perception. That's his reality. There's nothing to say that he didn't. Um, this is just what he's going off of. So with that um, there, there had to be something about Melissa that really drove this story. And it wasn't just her heartbreak it's the the fact of the matter that she dies um, as as needing a bit of attention. Sometimes she would need to do something that made her feel the love that she had longed for from her ex-husband. And once or twice before, she accidentally, quote unquote, OD'd, knowing that her son is supposed to find her and, and save her. Um, this one particular time, and this is kind of the impetus of the entire book, her son is late uh, to save her because he's actually using superpowers that she didn't know he had saving someone else. And it becomes this parallel of the son realizing that how with his best intentions, he has hurt his mother just like his father did. So where, you know, in the book where um, the announcement comes out, the reason why Apex Prime quote unquote gets caught is because uh, paparazzi snaps a picture of him leaving Angie's apartment. And now there's this big to do of, oh, Apex Prime has this girlfriend and blah, blah, blah. She's literally now in danger. And so knowing that she's in danger, he focuses on saving her and removing her family out of harm's way rather than addressing the fact of this infidelity to his ex-wife. She has to hear about it on the news. So this impact of her life being torn apart is she has to deal with alone because he's actively saving someone else who is now physically literally in danger. And, you know, he, it was not his intent to 
hurt her in that way, but it, he felt the responsibility that he had to protect Angie and her family because this announcement definitely put a target on them and all of the different you know enemies that he could have could be gunning straight for her right now, right then and there. And that even plays into why he was absent from John's life for so long, because his ex-wife threatens him with the notion of if you if you come back, I'll tell everyone who you are. And that, you know, when when he reveals that to John, John misunderstands and is like, oh, you know, you were so afraid that people are going to find out, you know, that you are a piece of crap husband. He's like, no, this would have put a target on you. And I can literally only be in one place at one time. It was already going to be a struggle to protect Angie and everyone associated with her. If your mother had revealed that, now I'd have to try to protect you in the same way. Your anonymity keeps you safe. That's what I was trying to protect. That's why I didn't come back, because I couldn't risk that in your mother's heartbreak, she would legit make true on her claim. And now other people would come after you because what I, I would I would die if I didn't save you because I wasn't there you know, or because I was doing this other thing that would have, that would have destroyed who he was on every level. So, you know, that's, that's the the twist of it is John is dealing with the fact that he too, in saving someone else allowed his mother to get hurt. And this time, like she dies. Um, he was, you know, using powers that he never told her about. Once again, how can something be good if you have to lie about it? Um, like all these different aspects of him, you know, kind of being just like his dad. And that's the thing that broke his heart was, oh my God, I'm so much like you that I've done this thing and I'm mad and I'm projecting my anger at you. And he goes to confront his dad. And that's why at the end of the story, you know, his dad flat out says, you know, killing me is not going to bring her back. And he's like, no, I absolutely know that. I just needed to get this out. Like that's essentially what it is. He needed to get this out. And now that he has... And he actually has heard the truth from his dad. Now they're in a place where they can possibly move forward together because they also realize that that's all he has. He doesn't have his mom anymore. It's he's so much like his dad. He needs his dad for guidance and all this stuff. So this is what this moment truly is. You know? Yeah. I, I and I and I loved that, too, because that was a very sort of I mean, I don't. I have no clue how the conversation went with your own son necessarily, but this felt like a re- like minus the guns and superpowers. This felt like a real dad son talk, you know. It definitely was. <laughs> I mean, not that my kid threatened me, but he was he was emotionally in a place that I needed to I needed to save him. You know, I needed to save him. I needed him to know that one, this wasn't about him. It, to a big degree, it wasn't about his mom. Um, I'm sorry for anything that he's felt since then. Um, you know, there's there's aspects of it that I will absolutely 100% apologize for. There's aspects of it that I will never apologize for, not to him or anyone. And to be that open also gives him, you know, some some life lessons to say, like, there are some things that it doesn't matter to me how bad it made anyone else feel because of what it needed to be. You know, um, I have a daughter that is kind of coming from this situation and I've told, you know, my ex-wife a million times, I would, I would destroy your world a million times over for my daughter because no matter what, she's more important to me than my spouse. You don't have to be my spouse, but she will always be my daughter. So in that hierarchy, 
I will do whatever, I would burn this world over again and again to make sure my daughter was safe. Everyone else be damned. Sorry, not sorry. You know, it's my kid. Like that's, that's who's supposed to get priority to me, for me, from me over anything. And that's really what a lot of this conversation came down to. Um, at the time when uh, my fiance and I were, were first starting out, I said, look, if things get to a point where it gets crazy and my sons say to stop, we're done. Because they're more important to me than anyone, you know, now, once we had a daughter, now it's a different conversation because now it's, it's, you know, we have to look at things from a different standpoint. It's not just a singular group of children over here. You know, we are, you know, blended family. We have to figure this out, but you know, before, no, it's still, my kids come before everything. Everything. I see where I stand in your life now, Victor. <laughs> I mean, I love you. I do. I, it's just the kids, man. You know, it's it's a responsibility thing. I brought them in this world. I owe it to them. I always thought I was top dog on the totem pole. Turns out, I mean, I listen, I can still see you from the top. I can I can still see you from the top. That's important. Come on. <laughs> that that takes us into never too late, um, which. Is basically this idea that, you know, uh, Tom's ex-wife, you know, overdoses and he decides that he's going to go back in time and prevent this from happening by using what I assume we're supposed to to know as the affinity gauntlet. Sort of. Yeah. Um, I created with this project this this special gauntlet called the Hand of Fate. And create these stakes with this particular story that we hadn't mentioned before, um, that there was a time traveler that he fights early in his career and he gets this glove from him. And the time traveler swears up and down that like this is the first step in Prime becoming like this massive destroyer. Like He's going to kill all these different people. And it's all because he uses this glove. Tom, of course, is like, no, I'll never use this glove. You know, thanks for telling me. Ha ha, jerk. Now you've, you've spoiled your plan. I'll never do this. And. I'll keep it in a place where no one else will be able to use this. So uh, for this to happen, it's, it's a statement of his true feeling of love, even towards his ex-wife, even after everything that's happened. Um, And it's also, this story really allows for me to show what kind of asshole I can be like flat out. Um, How pre, pre the trouble with love, Tom was a bit of a dick. Um, he had a chip on his shoulder about how he felt without any sort of regard to what the repercussions to anybody else was. Um, and he was so, I don't want to say self-righteous, but he was so okay with, with his own feelings about the situation that he didn't give a damn about anybody else. After the trouble with love and seeing what happened, he has to now look at himself a little differently, recognize what he did. And when he decides to do something about it, the, the juxtaposition between his, we'll call it the, the apex prime self that's of the, the current now versus the past self, the past one is an asshole in comparison because he still got this chip on his shoulder. He still feels all these things that he's never gotten to get out um, that apex prime has gotten to say to his son, you know, all these feelings that he's kept up for years He's already said, dealt with, he's put it out there in the world, it's done. This other one you see is really holding on to his own hurt, and it informs how he talks about his ex-wife, how he, you know, addresses so many different things. Um, even in the first issue, where, you know, after Prime goes back in time and meets up with his past self and his past 
you know, current wife, um, you know, Tom is kind of a dick. And Angie's like, obviously she died. Like, why are you being a jerk? And it's kind of in that moment where he's like, oh my God, like I'm, I'm so, you know, in my own feelings about my ex-wife that I'm not even paying attention to why he's here. You know, he clearly, something happened and I need to address that. I need to, you know, kind of straighten up and stop being like, oh, well, you know, she was this way and she was that way. No, because when you find out the truth, he's just as broken about it. You know, he's like, wait, what? Oh, oh, I never thought that would happen. This is the truth of humanity. You know, how many times have we ever been mad at somebody and they died, right? And we feel crushed because we never got a chance to fix it. Or the thing that, you know, suddenly that the thing that broke us up or made us not friends is so irrelevant. It doesn't matter. It's so small. But unfortunately, we've missed out on the opportunity to address it. We can't fix it now. So now we feel the dumbest way possible. That's Tom. That's where he is right now. Once he finds out that his ex-wife died and his future self comes back to fix that, he's he's got to change because he's like, oh, my God, I was a jerk. Like that was that's what it was. I was an absolute a-hole and I need to address this. Yeah. I, and, and and again, just more realness. Right. And I love how you break it down. Um, and so it left me ultimately in a place where, you know, I was like, OK, what's next? Um, right. And so then I scroll down and there's this very cool sort of, uh, infographic, I guess, um, that I, I breaks, it breaks down for sure different books that you're, that you're working on. But what I wasn't so sure about and what I'm curious about is, is there a relationship between these books? So full disclosure, yes. The entire Vantage in-house universe is connected. It is a a straight up multiverse. Um, That's why I wanted to create that graphic to kind of give that sense of things. Um, In this first issue of Never Too Late, we actually see hints of that shared universe. Um, We see uh, a quick cameo from Smith uh, from the Samaritan series. We see uh, our... our, uh, Uh, flagship character Vantage, who is not even premiered in a book yet. So his first appearance uh, is in uh, Never Too Late, number one. Uh, We also see Dr. Wonder, uh, who is his his placement in things is going to be fantastic. Uh, It's essentially uh, Wonders of the Weird and Beyond, which is my Fantastic Four sort of story. Um, It's a family of of adventurers who don't have powers, but they use technology and science and and just general tenacity to uh, save the world on a regular basis. And what's amazing to me is that it's based off of my first wife and and our family. So in a way I am, you know, giving deference to, you know, who she is, who she's been in my life. Um, I will forever and always have love for her because we had a family together. Like, you know, that's still like, if anything were to happen to her, like, please believe I'm, we're, we're going to war because she's still the mother of my sons, you know, that that's never going to change. So I wanted to give something that, you know, would still celebrate her and our family as it was. Um, we see Gloriana, uh, who is, essentially the Vantage in-house version of Wonder Woman. Um, she is, uh, if you've read the Origins Unknown story, Somewhere I Belong, she's that character grown up. Um, we also see the Gold Guardian, uh, who is also from Origins Unknown, the series um, Point of Authority. Uh, that's the kid, Benjamin, grown up as a superhero. So we're, we're literally showing you the expanse of the Vantage in-house universe. And it's, 
the next three issues will will showcase a lot more. Very, very cool. Um, I am a sucker for shared universes and characters crossing over. That's like I love that, and you don't really see that outside of the big two. So the idea that a singular creator's sort of universe, of course, with all the artists and and everyone else you work with, that those things will cross over. I think is super cool um, and very exciting. So what's the story now as far as how you're going to get these next issues out to the people? How can we get them? How can we support? Yes. Um, so <laughs> funny enough, we did the Indiegogo, which absolutely failed. Um, I love talking about my failures because it gives me an opportunity to learn. Um, so we set this Indiegogo up to try to raise $3,000, but the whole point was to focus on the trouble with love, which is a project that's already finished. So in reality, what we were trying to do is use it as a marketing platform. If we had reached that goal, the money that we raised would transfer over towards production on never too late, um, uh, specifically issue two and beyond. Um, what I found out though, after having launched this campaign is that Indiegogo has, kind of a political taint to it that the comics gate movement has almost exclusively moved to Indiegogo as their platform of choice for crowdfunding. Yep. I didn't know that. So because I don't follow that, that marketing uh, or that platform too well, um, I didn't know that. So I actually had a number of people tell me that um, there are people that won't support it because it's on Indiegogo because of that association that if I had moved this to Kickstarter, it would have funded immediately because they love this story, they think it's so great, and they want to see where it goes, but this is the case. So unfortunately at the time, I had actually already received contributions. And with Indiegogo, if you receive contributions, you can't shut down the campaign, which are all things that I learned. So I'm like, oh, interesting, this is very cool. Um, so that just wrapped up this week, actually, and uh, they sent over the the contribution. So, I mean, we literally only raised 7% of what we were looking to do. Um, so I'm going to be making those um, those pieces now and sending those out uh, by next week. So those people that were contributing, they still get what they what they uh, were trying to uh, – uh, the rewards that they went for. Um, but we are going to look at rebranding it and bringing it to Kickstarter since that seems to be a more applicable platform for uh, what we're trying to do. So um, obviously the overall goal that we have is $10,000. $10,000 pays for the entire production of everything. We're talking line work, colors, printing, everything. So that's going to be my ultimate goal, um, but I'm very willing to piecemeal that together. So when we go back to Kickstarter, we will relaunch for The Trouble with Love to let that get some ground under it. Um, obviously, as a as a add-on bonus, when we hit certain stretch goals, you will get Never Too Late number one as a part of it. Um, and just we'll kind of like segue into the rest of the series being made through the funds that we raise. So it's all about kind of parceling things out in a very strategic way that will uh, help everyone in, involved, you know, whether that's on the art side, getting that stuff done, or the readers still keeping up with everything. Well, I highly recommend that people check out uh, both titles and that, and obviously everything else that you're working on. But um, I, I mean, I want to see the continuation. So, you know, let, let like let's support this Kickstarter um, when it does drop. Hopefully that's not too far from now. Um, no, 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 I actually am going to I'm going to try to put it out in November. Yeah, I want to okay. I want to I don't want to sit on this too long. I'm going to give all of October to pumping it up, talking about it. 
um, on almost every platform that I can imagine, I'm going to try to pump this up daily videos or weekly videos at the very least talking about this coming out. Um, in fact, one of the things that I'm, I'm really big on right now is as a comic creator, my goal is to try to get people who don't normally read comics to embrace the medium. So I'm going to be giving digital copies of this book away for free to anyone that wants to read it. Because I feel like if you read it, you'll want to have a copy you know, a physical copy to enjoy. And so once we have, you know, just the readership of it on scale in mass, I think we'll easily be able to find a percentage of that readership that will support it physically to get the rest of the book to happen. So um, I'm, I just want people to read it. I think if you read it, first and foremost, um, you'll enjoy the story. It'll make you feel something and that you can't ask for much more than that as a creative. Well, if you allow it, we can definitely include a link to those uh, with this podcast so our listeners will be able to give that a listen. And what I would love, if you guys do check it out, is to write us, write Victor, let us all know how it made you feel. You know, how, how did it make you feel? Because I think this is a book that, yeah, exactly. You can't you can't read this book and not feel something. And I think that's that's kind of one of the coolest things about it is it's going to make you feel whether that's angry or confused reflecting on your past who knows i think that's really cool thank you thank you yeah so um i want to i want to ask you something because when i first met you the, the thing that stood out to me the most the thing that attracted me to wanting to speak with you uh, was the fact that you are a black comic book creator. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't tell him that yet. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> Man, he's trying to get off Indiegogo like he just got out of there. Why you put him on blast like that? Oh, man. Um, and that was that was something that I really hadn't encountered. Because, like, that was – I met you a few years ago, and I really hadn't seen black comic book creators. I didn't really know that that was a thing. And as someone who – Especially, you know, at the time was so focused on wanting to create comics, um, seeing someone who looked like me, who was actually tabling, who was doing it, was inspiring to me. Thank you. Thank you. I want to know what that journey has been like. Obviously, every creator goes through very similar struggles, but I have to think that as a black creator... That, that it has to have a little bit of a different, you know, twang to it as far as how, how difficult it can be. So can you speak to that, some of the, the things that you've encountered and, um, you know, just, just all that? Of course. Um, I am a different kind of black creator uh, where being a black creator is what I am, not who I am. And I make a very sincere distinction between it because there are um, many black creators that that's who they are. They create black, you know, stories, black characters for black people. And the notion of representation is so uh, influential on their on their work. Um, they, they, they create with that drive, with that need. And that's not necessarily something that I create with. I don't create with the need of seeing characters that look like me, um, whereas I just want more authentic characters. So it's a different level of things. Um, one could argue because I'm light skinned, that's what it is. Um, I don't feel like I gotta, you know, get all hardcore about it, but it's honestly where I am. Like I, I'm just not of that mindset where I'm looking for black characters to represent me. Um, I find 
myself and a lot of different people. And I think that's why on a, on a very real basis, I can get along with a lot of different people because I can find something that I can relate to in everyone. Um, that's, that's just me as a general creator. Um, how that's played out into my career though, is I never wanted to be the best black comic book artist or black, you know, best comic book or black comic book writer. I just want to be a good, great comic book writer, period. No other adjectives needed, no other qualifiers, no caveats. So for me as business moves, I didn't do very many black focused comic events. Um, in fact, I refused to do them because what, what I always looked at it as, and this is my own you know, perspective, is to be king of a marginalized space still is a marginalized space. You know, that doesn't make you great. It's more preaching to a choir. And I would rather step on a larger scale and see if I can make the right kind of noise there than to dominate in a smaller space. Um, the number of, of Black-oriented Comic-Cons in the country, um, there, there might be 10 of them, maybe. Maybe 10, uh, maybe not. And so the notion of that limitation wasn't, I never, I never wanted to play in that place. I never wanted to play in a spot that I, you know, you could dismiss me like, well, you know, you, you sold a bunch of books, but only at such and such a place. So you're only in this context. Um, if I can get on a stage where everyone is there, Marvel, DC, Legends, newcomers, everyone is there and I can make myself, you know, known if I can make my presence felt, then I can move anywhere. I can do anything and my blackness is irrelevant. I have superseded, you know, any sort of limitation that one would look at and say, oh, as a black guy, you can only do this much. False. I can do whatever I want. Um, now, having said that, I recognize that be, me being a black creator as what I am is important to many other people. You know, other people are going to look at me and they're going to say, I can because he can and I don't ever want to dismiss that or take that away from them. Just like you said, seeing me in that space inspired you. I am very happy that that was the case. Would I necessarily wave that flag for myself? No, but I would never take that away from anyone else that saw me in that capacity. Um, because that's, that's, a, that's a disrespect to you, your intentions, and things like that. Um, will I necessarily step in the front of, of you know, waving certain flags? No, because I don't feel like that would be genuine for me. Um, I've never experienced uh, racism in the job. You know, I've never had anyone tell me I couldn't do something because I'm black. So for me to be like, oh yeah, we need to see more black heroes. That's not an authentic statement for me. So I will never make that statement. Um, do I think that, you know, black creators are marginalized in a lot of ways? Yes. Can I do things to help with that? Yes. Am I necessarily going to, you know, lead the forefront in conversation on that one? No, because again, I have not felt that kind of pushback. So I think it would be disingenuous for me to step out there like, oh, yeah, 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 I know exactly what you're talking about. No, I don't. I don't know what you're talking about. And the thing is, is that I don't have to, to have experienced it in order to support you. The only thing I have to do is just not get in your way. And that's the biggest thing for me. You know, um, I had many conversations with people on the Black Lives Matter front and, you know, there's, oh, you know, you're only saying only. First of all, no, never said that. Only is your perspective, which you're projecting. You need to get out of the way of that. And the thing is, is if you agree that all lives matter, then why are you arguing? You're getting in the way of your own argument. If all lives matter and they say black lives matter, your only statement should be, yep. Like, yeah, that's it. You know, yeah. stop, stop getting in the way. Um, 
me again, I can I'll I wouldn't be front row, but definitely third, fourth row. I'm going to be right there like, no, nah, they're right. They're absolutely right. You know, get out of the way. Stop, you know, trying to dismiss or disseminate, you know, falsehoods. Just get out of the way of what they're saying, because what they're saying is true. Um, and that's tricky for a lot of people. Uh, I, I arguably could be considered on a on a scale platform that I have a responsibility to bring people up. Um and it's that's why, again, for my own comfort, my own you know sentiment, I, I won't be the forerunner guy. Will I get in your way of doing it? Never. But I won't put myself in the in the forerunning position of something that I don't fully dedicate my life to. Now, as an indie creator or a guy that's that's all about doing it himself, I will gladly step in front there because that's what I do. That's where I am. I'm all about creating content, getting workout, no excuses. That's my life. As a black creator, secondary, not going to be in the front lines of that one because that's just not that's not genuine to me. And like I said, for me, authenticity is everything. You know, that's what people will truly latch on to about me as a creative. Um, I want you to feel authentic about the things I say and do. So just because I fit a criteria, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's real to me. And I don't want you to, to think that I'm that guy if that's not me. Don't love me for who I'm not. Love me for who I am or hate me for who I am. That's fine. Man. those are uh, those are words to live by i think i think the work seems to to put that out there too so so all of that being said you definitely still do have black characters in your work and i'm wondering how that has been received has has there ever been a moment where someone maybe said something had a feeling anything like that no, actually, I'm gonna tell you the thing that that tripped me out uh, in 2015 on the Wizard World tour. Um, we we made the Samaritan, which is a you know black centric character. Essentially, anyone that's ever watched Luke Cage, the first three episodes of Luke Cage, you've read the Samaritan. Okay, yeah, I said that. Okay, Netflix, I see y'all. No, uh, it's <laughs> it's a multi million dollar commercial for my book, like in all reality. But we we did um, city specific variant covers while on the Wizard World Tour. And the thing that shocked me the most was the very first time that I sold out of that book was the third show in in Madison, Wisconsin. Now, wow. I don't know about you, but when you say <laughs> black people, I don't automatically assume Madison, Wisconsin. Like, not at all. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's not a synonymous statement. You know, it's not like Detroit or, you know, Compton. or Like, none of that. You don't, you don't automatically go... Madison, Wisconsin. Oh, yeah, black folks. So the notion that this book sold out there means that there is a lot of people that were interested and supportive of this title that do, that do not look like me. They don't look like Smith that may not necessarily directly relate to the story at all, but they were interested in it. So once again, I've never had anyone really push back on the blackness of things that I've created. Um, I've had someone push back on the lack of blackness, actually. Uh, with the trouble with love. Yeah. Yeah. I actually at one of those, you know, black conventions, a person looked at the, the book and was like, oh, because there's not a black person and I don't want to read it. And what's funny to me is the, the very specific reason why I did not make Apex Prime black was because I didn't want my work to be used as a generalized statement for black men. Black men cheat. Black, black men leave. Black men do this. I did not want that. Mm. So I specifically did not make Apex Prime black for that reason. Even though that is a very, you know, autobiographical story, 
I did not want that statement being made. So I eliminated that conversation piece by making Apex Prime Caucasian. I'll be I'll be honest, when I read the book, I had that same thought. I was like cuz I think you know, when you are, you know, when you are whatever you are, whenever you engage with something, you you bring that into the work. So I was thinking like, man, okay, he's not black. That is what it is, but I'm kind of glad because this story took a turn and I I would hate I would hate to, to have to be like, oh yeah, of course, or you know, anything like that. So and, yeah. And that's the other thing is like looking at my own life, like, okay, so my ex-wife and I didn't work out. One of the things that you'll never hear me say unless I'm teasing her, I'll never call her my baby's mom. Ever. That's my ex-wife. We have we have a different, you know, level of things. In the black community, baby's mom, baby's dad, that's a that's a term that's thrown around all the time that is so dismissive of relationships. We had a better relationship than just being baby's mom and dad. We were ex-wife, ex-husband. We were married. We were a unit. Um, there's a difference to how we do these things. Even though you know my wife and I, or ex-wife and I, aren't together, I'm still very active in my son's life. Like to the point where, like literally yesterday, she called me up and was like, "Yo, we forgot to turn in some paperwork. Can you run it out to the school? I got you. I go to the school, and they know who I am. My sons don't go to the same school district that I live in." They're in a totally different school district, but I'm there enough. Hey, Mr. Dandridge, how you doing? Oh, I'm good. I got some stuff for Julian. Can you call him down to the office? Yes, sir. Not a problem. That's a different level of black dad than what we see all the time in media. It's usually, you know, oh, who's your dad? I don't know. I haven't seen him or he's in jail or he's this. like we are so far from that, you know, perspective that I didn't want to do anything that could lead into, you know, suggesting that that's the case. Like not at all. You know, I, I, I didn't want that. Um, I even I even play around with that on a level with the Samaritan. A thing that I don't talk about um, all the time and, and part of it, not to J.K. Rowling it, but it's because it was irrelevant to the story. Smith is gay. No one knows this. Like this is a very subtext thing. Um, the closest thing that you'll find to it is in the fifth issue, the character Nita, who is actually a prostitute, um, she offers you know, some, some quality time with Smith and he turns it down and the way he turns it down just kind of is like a matter of fact statement of no, no thanks. And you can just read as though he's just not interested in her. The truth is he's not interested in women. Is that a talking point for a story that is not focused on that? No. So I don't get into it because it's not, it's irrelevant to this story. It's not the point. However, I will challenge anyone that has loved that story and then once it becomes more prevalent and found out that Smith is gay, if you have a problem with it, then you're you have exposed yourself. You have said more about you than anything, because if you love this character before, what has stopped you now? His gayness didn't change anything whatsoever. Where are you at in life? You know, and that's that's a different you know, that's that same kind of thing as as, you know, black men. You know, we're supposed to be super masculine. Here's a character that absolutely is. However, he likes men. Now what? Like he's not any more effeminate. He's not any less masculine. The dude is a beast. He's amazing. But there you go. Now what? You know, how do you how do you reconcile? Do you need to reconcile? If you don't, awesome. If you do, well, this is the beginning of you being a better person. Let's I'll gladly meet you there when you're when you're ready. So I personally could speak to you all day uh, about all of this stuff. Uh, but there's so much more to talk about. 
So we're going to move forward with that. But if you guys want to hear part two of Victor and I chopping it up, we're going to do that. Hopefully, if, if he has the time and New York Comic Con so you can I'm make so time. time. <laughs> That's what I like to hear. Uh, you guys can definitely check that out. Um, are you going to be able to hang out with us for a little longer? And Yeah, yeah. We, I got a couple minutes. Yeah, we, we, we've got, we've got uh, actually, in a weird way, a follow-up of our interview that we did at Keystone. Um, we talked about Spider-Man and we talked about what was going on with Disney and Sony. That's going to be coming up here in a moment. We're going to be talking about that. But first, uh, we've got the Pals Pulls to do. So Pals Pulls is a segment, for those of you who are unfamiliar, where we talk about the books that are coming out this upcoming week that we are most excited about. And since Victor is you know, our special guest. I want to offer you the opportunity to let us know about any books that you're excited that are coming out or books that you're reading now that you're excited about. Oh my God. Uh, Bad Reception, uh, Aftershock Comics, uh, my man Juan Doe. One of the greatest sleeper hits I think I've seen in a while. This is the premise. You've got essentially mega superstar pop singer, her super art tour author uh, fiance are getting married, but they want to create a very personal in the moment experience. So all they only have a small wedding. Um, imagine like Beyonce and Jay-Z getting married with like a tiny wedding. Um, but it's totally off the grid. You're not even allowed to have a cell phone. And the, the island that they're on is secret location, cell phone dampeners, all this stuff is happening. They bring in some of like the top tier, like the best filmmaker uh, who they're friends with, like all these different top tier people. But at the same time, there's a murder like mystery happening, like a slasher style thing that's going on. So it's phenomenal. I implore everyone to check that out. Issue two just dropped this week. It's phenomenal. Bad reception uh, is, is an incredible book. Really aftershock comics is doing some fantastic things. Uh, I think if there's, if there's anyone that on the, you know, non Marvel DC image uh, side of things that's, that's killing it. It's aftershock. They're doing some great stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I see their name a lot. I can't, personally think of an aftershock book that i've read but i feel like i have um but they're on the come up for sure sorry yeah we should definitely yeah. change that um uh they'll they'll have a booth at uh new york so we can i can introduce you to some folks yes that would Please, be yeah that would be fantastic absolutely Please do. yes that would be fantastic uh so from marco we've got uh culprit number one yeah, so this is gonna be a new arc from Michael Fife, who's dropping. Uh, obviously, he's continuing story Copra uh, through Image right now, because previously it was, I believe, Ashcan Press, or it was another smaller publisher. Um, but now he has it through Image, uh, and actually, he has a signing next week, Wednesday, uh, or this upcoming Wednesday uh, on the second. And it's going to be at Mysterious Time Machine in New York City. So anybody who is who wants to go, definitely go check it out. He's a really nice guy. I've met him there before. Um, he's really fun to talk to. Uh, and he just, like, loves chatting about stuff. So if you guys have the time, definitely go check that out. Awesome. That's that's pretty cool. Uh, if you go, you might see myself or Marco there. Yeah. Uh, Ruby Falls number one you also chose. So Ruby Falls, I have no context for this book, right? I just saw that it had... Uh, and Nesenti, who was off, he was on the on the seeds, and that was a book that uh, one hasn't. I haven't seen a lot of like coming out from yet, but uh, I really liked what I did get from the first uh, two issues of the seeds. And 
Uh, it also has Flavia Biondi, who's some Italian artist. Uh, and I'm always looking to sort of have, at least in my art, different kinds of styles and different looking for different inspirations so this being an italian artist you know coming from the european market and this is going to be her first debut book right uh, i would love to see that and sort of be able to just experience it because it, it's always a different style it's a different approach you know panel layouts camera angles all that kind of stuff it's it's a different market out there so it's always interesting to see once they come into the u.s market awesome uh yeah this book had caught my eye so if, uh with that added context, I might have to pick it up myself. And actually, uh, it's the editor is Karen Berger, so good oh. stuff. Oh, yeah. Okay. Is it a bur- is it a Burgers books? It's I think it's just Dark Horse. Actually, I lied. I'm looking at it now. It's a Burger book. Yes. So from Kale, we've got Legion Millennium number two. Now listen, this segment <laughs> is supposed to be about books we're excited about. I want to be excited about the Legion coming back and Bendis being at the helm. I want to be excited about it. It's so bad. But the first <laughs> issue of this, the first issue of this series was such a letdown. Oh, um, you're like, I'm giving it. You're like a monk ahead, from please. the Middle Ages, just whipping themselves in the back. I, no, that's yeah. definitely me. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> that's definitely me, bro. That's true. Just, I'm gonna give it this shot, and I'm gonna give it Legion number one. And if I don't like it, man, I'm out. Like Bendis is just, I, it, it's too, it's too 101. And that's just like, not to say that I feel like I'm over superhero comics. Hickman's, you know, he's making steak for me, baby. But like Bendis <laughs> is just, it's just he's just baby bottles in the fridge, man. Like I can't. I need more than that. I could write. Is he trying to redefine what the Legion is? I mean, he's just the one bringing it back. Gotcha. You know, in the rebirth era or whatever. Like, like Marlon Brando said to Christopher Reeve when he was a baby in the original Superman movie, you will all join me in the light in seeing that uh, Bendis books aren't great anymore. Well, just wait till I start writing for him. Then it'll be better. <laughs> Phil, you can't say that because you still haven't read Action Comics or Superman. So I have them sitting over there. All right. Well, listen, you gotta you gotta pick them up. You gotta, you gotta uh, read them though, man. Exactly. It's so like what? you're 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 spending the money to support Bendis while talking <laughs> shit about him and not even reading the book. <laughs> like I'm the I'm the type of. I'm the type of audience he's looking for. <laughs> Just don't read the book. Part. Listen, hey, listen. You're the yeah. type of audience I'm looking for too. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say I, I, I can use that kind of audience. Anyone out there? <laughs> I got kids, y'all. Come on. <laughs> oh man. Well, a book that you are reading and enjoying, Phil, is Immortal Hulk, and you chose to highlight the volume one hardcover that's dropping this week. Yeah, so that's that's the way I like to read things, you know. I like to sit by, you know, I like to sit by the fire that I don't have and in a nice robe that I don't wear and I like to I like to read a nice hardcover, you know? Uh 
but this is a series that I uh, I found myself forced to read because all of the internet is uh, all about Immortal Hulk by uh, Al Ewing. And this hardcover is collecting the first 10 issues. And I think the Avengers issue 684. And at the end of the day, when I... When I own it, I'm not going to own the floppies or the soft cover trade uh, tradebacks. I'm going to own these dope ass hardcovers that will sit on my beautiful bookshelf, and I can look at it and say, "This is a piece of art." And then I'll have a fire one day. But still, no robe, mind you. Like he's still going to sit there naked, <laughs> reading, reading hardcover books. You think he can afford a, a robe Hulk? and a fireplace? Come on, cave. Listen, he's got goals. He's got goals. He's, he's in journalism. He's got no fucking money. It's tasteful nudity. Yeah. Although, really, you should go for the soft cover if that's your goal because... Uh... Whoa, whoa, whoa. This has got so pornographic. <laughs> it's, it's... All I know is that his Christmas card this year is going to be your fault. <laughs> but listen, we've been trying to corner the market on Pornhub for months. Whoa. We're the number one comic book podcast on Pornhub. That that could be a thing. I literally have played with the idea of taking my uh, comic book titles and turning them into sex toys. So, <laughs> listen, if you guys go there, let me know. Cause I gotta... I, when you say comic book titles, are you talking about your genitalia or what? No, like literal comic book titles. So, like, all right, the Samaritan would be like this big, thick, black dildo. Like... <laughs> All right, yeah, yeah. The trouble with love is a is a is a you know fleshlighty kind of thing, right? You know, origins unknown. They're like a, a gift bag of of random things. You don't know exactly what's going to be in it. And then the kindergartens are condoms. <laughs> All right. When I tell you, I've thought of these things. Damn. I have legit thought this of these. This is things. brilliant. <laughs> this is brilliant. This is the kind of multi level marketing. That I like. The, the kindergartens are condoms. condoms. <laughs> Come on. Right? No? Wait, 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 wait. What about what about Wonders of the Great Beyond? Now that one we gotta we gotta figure some stuff out. We gotta yeah, we'll that talk, one we'll talk. That's a that that's a spermicide. it's a it's a loop that's what that is wonders of the wonders of the weird and beyond that's a loop that's what it is right there spermicidal loop it's a perfect event yeah exactly 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 hardest working man in comics indeed so i chose uh hope number four uh from another friend of the show this is from dirk manning and kaylin smith who have been killing it on hope uh we'll be seeing them at new york comic-con as well the book is awesome, and I'm really glad to see that people seem to be supporting it. So uh, if you're a fan of Dirks, you've heard him countless times uh, talking with us. Go support the work. It's good stuff. Um, and then uh, Pete and I both chose House of X number six. I mean, let's get it, man. Like I, the, the one negative thing I have to say about this book at this point is that it's over soon. <laughs> like I'm, I, I like, co-sign with that I'm, one. I'm heartbroken that the week to week like joy that it's been to read the book, reread it, talk about it on the show is gonna end. That sucks, and that's the one thing about this that has sucked. Like it has been a treat every every issue, and I ah, I just uh, 
I hope that the momentum that this event has built carries into the smattering of X titles that are coming out from it because I I want to keep reading the X-Men and I haven't felt that way since I was a teenager. I'm in the same boat, man. Uh, I'm bummed out. I don't want it to end, but Dawn of X is going to be really cool. So I'm looking forward to that too. The biggest news of the week by far is something that I think shocked a lot of people and didn't shock a lot of other people, which is that Disney and Sony have reached a deal to keep Spider-Man inside of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Who called it? Anyone? Put my hand up. Victor called it. All right. So, uh, first, I'm going to give the 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 I, the outline of what's going on and then Victor I want you to speak on why you saw this coming and what your perspective was on it before which of course everyone can hear also if they go and check out the interview that you and I did at Keystone Comic Con which is on youtube.com slash the comic spells so uh, Sony said that they were ending the relationship or the relationship was ending because Kevin Feige was too busy working on Marvel's new properties, which at the time were Fantastic Four and X-Men. We also know because of Deadline's reporting that Disney had asked for a 50-50 deal on uh, co-financing. So basically they'd provide 50% of the money to produce the film, but wanted 50% of the the take once the movie released and made a billion dollars, of course, as they do. Um, For context... The only real money that Disney makes on Spider-Man films is uh, the, the the toys, you know, um, and 5% of whatever the movie ends up making. That's within the, the original deal that they made with Sony. So Sony didn't want to do the 50-50 deal, even though I've seen reports that it was actually just 25. Um, but, you know, whatever. Uh, Sony didn't want to do it, and then the talks fell through. And uh, Sony's excuse was that they just couldn't keep Feige on board. So, uh, flash forward, what, two months or so? Yeah, maybe not even that long. Um, Yeah, flash forward a month, and now they're back together. Uh, Deadline reporting that uh, Sony and, and Disney have been able to broker a deal, which is for 25 percent of the production costs on sony's end and 25 percent of the gross or i'm sorry on disney's end and 25 percent of what the movie ends up making this is for two films i i want to make that clear because a lot of people are saying it's for one film it's not for one film it's for spider-man 3 and a team-up movie that is not that is not announced yet, which could be an Avengers film. It could be, you know, whatever. He pops up in Black Panther, for example. Who knows? We don't know. Um, the interesting part to that, and then I'm going to ask uh, for your guys to for you guys to uh, speak on this issue. The interesting part is that Kevin Feige had um, he 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 spoken out, and what he had to say was very interesting. Kevin Feige essentially alluded to the fact. That Spider-Man can appear in Sony movies. I, I I can't find it for whatever reason. But basically what he said was there's a Spidey-verse over at Sony and the possibilities are endless. And that 
to me, read as this could lead to Spider-Man being in those movies. Victor, what do you think about this? So, like I said before, I am team Sony on this one. Um, Strictly from a a business standpoint, I can understand why Sony would want to protect what their investment has been. Um, There's so many people that want to dispel Sony and be like, oh, they haven't made a good Spider-Man movie. That's not true. Like, you're in your feelings and you're ridiculous. Um, The truth of the matter is Marvel Studios exists because of the success that Tony or Sony has had with Spider-Man. Like, that is why it exists. Um, after X-Men hit at the box office, cool, not a problem. That's been cool, fun. It wasn't until the major success of, of Sony's Spider-Man that, one, Stan Lee invoked his clause with Marvel of his uh, 10% that he's supposed to get from non-comic book features. Um, it was it was Spider-Man that did that. Spider-Man 2, to be specific. Um once they started seeing how successful their properties could be, that's when Marvel Studios was started, was actually seeing more than anything the success of Sony Spider-Man that they wanted to follow suit. Now, have they done it better financially? Absolutely. Not saying that that's not true, but they have, in fact, created some great properties. The other thing is that just recently, literally just this year, uh, Sony won an Oscar for Into the Spider-Verse in the category of animation. Which, let's let's be frank here, it has been, I believe, 13 years since Disney lost in that category. 13 years. So the notion that Spider-Man being with Sony could topple Disney in basically Disney's playground gives way more like credence and power to what Sony is capable of versus the necessity of, of working with Marvel Studios. So... With this deal, even asking for 25% more, which is five times, like you have to look at it in that context. It's five times what they were originally getting, right? In the sense of what uh, Far From Home made, they got 5%, which was like $55 million. Five times 55 million, that's $250 million. That's a quarter billion dollars that they would be entitled to. A quarter billion dollars that Sony would not get. Too many times people are looking at things of a 50-50 share and they're like, oh, that's fair. No, it's not fair. Like you're looking at a a sensibility, but not actually applying real numbers to it. Like in the case of uh, as it escalated to 50-50, which is when we heard that things fully broke down, the notion of Spider-Man, I think Far From Home was like 150 million or $250 million to make. So in order for this deal to go through, Sony saves, quote unquote, $125 million, but then they have to give up out of the gross $500 million. That's not that's not a good deal. I saved 125 mil to lose 500 mil. No, like that's a that's a terrible business move. And considering that Sony is in a position of power, Disney should have known better than to try to, you know, actualize and muscle them like that. They are not in the strength position. They've already bought Fox this year. So they're not in a position to offer huge cash dividends to try to buy Sony. Sony just has to to maintain. That's it. So, you know, on a financial basis, they wouldn't be able to buy Sony. Um, It was hard enough for them to buy Fox. They're too close to a monopoly now. That's the other thing that people aren't looking at. They're like, oh, well, Sony could just get bought by Disney. No, not really. Like, they actually had to go through the Department of Justice to look at this purchase of Fox. They would definitely get dinged. 
for trying to get Sony. That's just, it, it wouldn't, I don't think it would go through. Um, and realistically, even when you say, you know, context things, 5%, that seems small. 5% of a billion dollars is still a lot of money. I would take 1% of a billion dollars, please and thank you, and would be just as happy. But the other thing is that uh, Sony gets no money, none, zero dollars, when Spider-Man appears in a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. Now, let's look at it. Between all five, five movies that Spider-Man has been a part of in this collected universe, only two of them Sony gets money for. The majority of them, Disney gets all the money. So once more and again, who is the bad guy here? Who is actually winning more than not? Like between Civil War, Infinity War, and Endgame, that's three movies that Spider-Man has appeared in that have grossed over a billion dollars that Sony gets no part of. Their property is in that movie and they get nothing. There's also the the context that Sean added of how much they make on merchandise where like every time that Spidey appears in one of those movies, they sell a new action figure. There's a new Funko Pop. He had a Dr. Pepper soda over the summer, like all that crap. That's all right in Disney's pocket. And that's billions of dollars in its in and of itself. Exactly. So realistically, Disney is the big kid on the yard and Sony just happens to have the cool toy that the big kid really wants to play with. And so Sony very rightfully, you know, stuck to their guns and said, no, um, I, I appreciate the notion of the, the fan outcry. I appreciate that Sony was still willing to deal when in fact, all the parts and pieces that they have to create their own separate universe are thriving. They're real. Uh, as I understand it, there was a nine figure deal with uh, Miller and Lord to actually create live action television for the Spider-Man universe. That would be incredible. Um, right now, if, if anything, and this deal could still go through this way, cause this is the way my head would work. Um, I see Netflix being like the best location for Sony to work with on this, because if there's anybody that's going to give Sony the best deal to produce some Spider-Man live action stuff, it's going to be Netflix because if for no other reason, if Netflix is as petty as I would be, cause I'm super petty, I'm petty Shabazz. Um, <laughs> like Disney took away the, the Netflix series, right? So the Marvel Netflix stuff is gone. They can't claim it anymore. Imagine if your flagship title character comes to my my distribution streaming platform and you can't have him. Man, I would do everything I could to get that to happen. I'd, I'd give Sony, a, hey, listen, I'm only going to charge y'all a dollar. One dollar. Y'all can come on over here. Come on through. Just because I know the amount of, the amount of money that they would get from that show, Sony would get their money. Netflix would get that acclaim. And Disney's just sitting there like, I wish we had Spider-Man. Man, I guess we shouldn't have done that. Like, that's that's the way I would have moved. That's the way I would have moved. I'm just saying. It's all business. So do you think that this deal that they have concocted now will extend beyond the two films? Or do you feel like Sony and Disney decided to, you know, kiss for the kids and they're going to make everyone happy, send Spider-Man off? And then he'll just be Sony exclusive again. I think that's exactly what's going to happen. This isn't a long enough deal. You know, if you think about it, a two picture deal when what they had originally was five. That's not a that's not a long deal at all. This is just enough time for Sony to either develop a whole platform for Spider-Man 
or as the rumors have been for another entity to come in and buy Sony. That's the interesting wrinkle though, right? Because like to your point, there's no way that Disney buys Sony, but like if say a Comcast does, right? Like another one of these giant conglomerates. Um, if that rumor holds true, Disney gets Spider-Man anyway. And Sony makes their few billion dollars off the two movies that they make. They make whatever other villain spinoff they want to make that makes another couple million dollars. And then they get sold anyway. And they've wrung as much money as they can out of Spider-Man to get the most money for when the company sells. And then it doesn't even matter. But see, that's that's the platform of everyone wins. The argument right now is that Sony would be in a position to actually lose. And that's the one thing that they, they that they don't want. If they devalue what they get as a profit margin setup, anyone that would come in to buy them gets to lowball because now they're not making as much money off of their projects. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Uh, I still think that Sony was playing the long game, and I think that this was an agenda that they had. Um, I mean, I think that when you look at where Spider-Man's uh, movies were at prior to the Marvel deal, uh, they weren't in the best place. I, there, there are people who like the Amazing Spider-Man films, but I don't where, think, but I don't where, think. where is one one of these? Show me one of these people. Lies. I know kids who swear by Andrew. Okay, Garfield. you qualified right there. You know kids I, who were just I, happy to see Spider-Man. I I like the first one. I don't. Know. That's fair. You can like the first one. The, the first one is fine. Mm, the first one is fine. Mm, Sean, Sean, those hey. folks are called wrong. <laughs> Fair enough. I think I think no matter what, it's it, it, you can't argue that they sure as hell didn't make a billion dollars, right? Like Amazing Spider-Man two, like made a paltry profit, which is why there was no Amazing Spider-Man three. The the other consideration there as well is that no matter what deal Sony has, they don't make merchandising money off Spider-Man. Period. Disney makes it, no matter who produces the film. And so because of that, when when you see Amazing Spider-Man made like let's say 800 million, I think I think that's what the first one might have done. It was 6 the 6 to 800 million range. That's a big number. But when you consider production costs, when you consider the cost to pay actors and everything else, um, whatever the production cost is, typically you double it. That's the that's the logic there. So realistically, they made a fraction of what it sounds like they made. So that was a big impetus for the deal that they did with Marvel. And it's hard to argue that it hasn't been beneficial for them. Has it been as beneficial for them as Disney? Well, they were. there would never have been a Venom movie that would have done as well as it did if Spider-Man's profile wasn't where it is now. And so in that regard, I think that Sony has capitalized on this deal just as much as Marvel had, not necessarily through Spider-Man, but through his profile being so high that people want more Spider-Man. So, yeah, maybe they don't make as much money off of Spider-Man's appearances in the MCU, but they sure do make money off Into the Spider-Verse, and they sure do make money off Venom, and they sure are going to make money off Venom 2 and Morbius and the 50 million Spider-Verse spinoffs. So I think... Fucking Madam Web now, apparently. Ma- Madam Web movie that, you know... <laughs> I'm going to tell you all for real, that Madam Web thing, I think that was the final straw where Disney was like, okay, 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 okay. <laughs> It's like, shit, they're going to pull Madam Web off the bench. All right, fine, fine. They playing. They bugging right now. They are messing with us. We are getting trolled harder than ever. Madam Web? Like, what is that? 
This, has she ever had a book? She actually has a very intricate story. She's uh, the central character of the. <laughs> she's the central character of that of the Spider-Man comics world. I mean, she's, yes, she's a, she's a fucking young redhead now. Yeah, that's like that's like saying God is a centralized character to the Bible, but we have no idea what his story is. Like we don't, we don't really care. What would a uh. fucking God movie be? <laughs> right? You know what I'm saying? It's like we're gonna make a movie called God, and we're like, yeah, nah. I don't know about you, but I'm very interested in God's story. I want to know all the answers. It's just, it's just funny to me because, like, you know, the 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 most I know Madam Web from is during the the late 80s run where there was like, yo, we're going to have Spider-Man do a bunch of this weird supernatural stuff. And her defining characteristic was being a super smart, mysterious woman who sat in a chair. It's like, what is that movie? <laughs> like, <laughs> That's it. It's Madam Web's story. She's like reading stories to young spider folk and telling them about Spider-Man. Like, that's the only way that that makes sense to me. In any way, shape, or form. Let's yeah, see. I can actually fuck with that as an anthology where it's just like, yo, oh, let's look at all the different multiverse. Yo, okay, all right. <laughs> you know, like, now, if she had popped in with uh, Into the Spider-Verse and she's like, here, let me tell y'all a story. That would have been dope, but no, that's not what they did. Listen, listen. A Madam Web movie would probably be the coolest Sony movie they ever made. And this is the other thing. They've already made two movies about God. They are Bruce Almighty and Evan Almighty. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, yeah, there was a movie. Cl- there was a, call, a movie called Mother with Jennifer Lawrence, which was uh, wild as shit. That movie's about God. Crossover potential there. <laughs> and, um, and more importantly, more importantly, Sean, you said that this gives Spider-Man the opportunity to cross over into Sony movies, which means only one thing: we're getting Spider-Man and Grown Ups three. <laughs> almost choked oh my god <laughs> what's wild to me is you know I have this running theory that the Ghostbusters and the Ninja Turtles are in the same universe damn you're onto something they might be they might be in the same universe the most Grown-ups. ambitious crossover in media history I'm, I'm gonna read the quote and uh i want to hear you know your perspectives on what this could mean so he said uh this is from kevin feige i am thrilled that spidey's journey in the mcu will continue and i and all of us in marvel studios are very excited to, that we get to keep working on it spider-man is a powerful icon and a hero whose story crosses all ages and audiences across the globe he also happens to be the only hero with a superpower to cross cinematic universes. So as Sony continues to develop their own Spideyverse, you never know what surprises the future might hold. Now, so, like, go ahead. Oh no, go ahead. I, I was gonna say, like, my read on that is there was that rumor that we talked about previously that part of the deal was that they were discussing the possibility of like a bigger partnership where. Feige and like the Marvel machine would have a similar involvement in all of the Spider-Man spinoff movies. And I feel like that's what we're looking at here is that like Sony's going to have their cake and eat it too, for as long as that makes sense, where they'll let him go and be in the MCU stuff and they can like loosely tie all their movies to that success in the same way that they were like, yeah, maybe Venom's in the MCU. I don't know. And there was that whole thing with Feige just being like floored by her saying that. But now it's like, I wonder if that's what we're working our way up to. So 
I normally would agree with that logic because it makes perfect sense. The problem is what Victor pointed out, which is that there's a two-picture deal. So if that's the idea, why would you only sign a deal for two movies? And that that is kind of the wrench in things, right? Is like what Sony's clearly out here playing 4D chess, and it's like what do they see the next move as? But my thing is, what if they want to do this two-picture deal so that they can have this entire song and dance happen again when that's up? Because here's the thing, right? If Sony's going to get sold by the time this two-picture deal is up, doesn't even matter. If they decide that that's not the way that the company's moving and they're going to stay independent, they can always play – they can always be like, oh, you know what? We're going to take our toy back again and then renegotiate with Disney and – potentially come from another place of strength again in that conversation right especially if you look at the marvel trajectory we did an episode how long ago where we were talking about how phase four doesn't have the hype level that the first three phases did right it doesn't have as many flagship leading characters that we've come to know and if you look at phase five and it's built with this very heavy spider-man involvement and disney's not willing to give them up and sony wants to renegotiate like that that puts them in a position of strength in that conversation again, like Victor pointed out, where they're they have all the power in that conversation then, and if they can have the takeaway be, hey, like we'll let you make the solo Spider-Man movies, and we get a ton of money for those. He can show up in whatever movies that you want him to, and yeah, we don't get paid for those, but it helps the Spider-Man brand a hell of a lot, and will produce Venom 2 and all these fucking spinoffs, and we can have Tom Holland as Spider-Man in those movies and make a ton of money on those. Yep. Like, you just capitalize on the fact that, to what you just said, Pete, you just capitalize on the brand name, right? That brand name is just going to increase, and that's going to increase the value for whatever Sony has at that, at that point, right? And then you're able to, let's say, they don't even stop at this two-picture deal. Like, obviously, we've been we've been lied to in the past by by any of these execs, right? Like, so we don't necessarily know the exact machinations of, of all of this anyway, or how they're even going to culminate outside of this, right? Who's to say that down the line? To what Pete was saying, maybe he'll just pop in. Like, he'll pop in on, on one. He'll pop in on another. Bring up that hype, that start that um that name brand just continues to increase and then you just keep playing with your toys doing whatever you want to do because it's like all right cool like we found some success on this stuff whatever like he'll go play in whatever other play uh playground that's totally fine but at the end of the day we all know who it all ties back to right and as long as that maintains the 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 tying factor where it's just all right cool spider-man still technically part of sony as long as people still continue to understand that i think that there's immense value from a long-term perspective for that can i can i throw in just my little conspiracy theory it's, oh, a, yeah. it's a big one it's a big one all right i still think more than anything like you said sony is playing a long game if i if i reveal anything i apologize i don't know nothing don't send those shooters my way but this is just <laughs> this is just the way that my head works i do believe that long term uh sony is planning a partnership with netflix and that's going to be the ultimate, like penultimate aspect of all of this. Um, mm. Because of the potential distribution of live action through a streaming service, I think we're going to see this escalate to a way where uh, future PlayStations will come automatically with uh, Netflix access. Like you'll oh. automatically get that. 
Um, through this Netflix access, you'll be able to play many different PlayStation-oriented games as a stream. Because um, that's one thing we haven't even talked about. Like the Spider-Man PS4 game, how successful was that? That's all Sony, right? So as a collective sort of move, these are ways that it's very beneficial for Sony to partner up with Netflix. On the transverse of it, if Sony has a distribution platform for content in theaters, uh, Mark Miller sold his entire imprint to Netflix. Mm -hmm. Imagine if there are Mark Miller, Miller World titles that are supposed to first premiere on Netflix, but they get a theatrical release as well. So that Netflix actually makes back money that they put into production because they partner with Sony as a distribution platform. So like, you know, even if it's a matter of like, you only get 10 days of this thing being in theaters and then it's directly streaming on, on Netflix, that's a chance for them to make back money that they've you know invested in this whole thing. That partnership, that deal would change everything because it's not one company owning the other and it would change exactly how uh, content is distributed for the near future. Everyone would start to do different deals like that. And it'd be, it, even in that, right, it'd be like a flex on, on their end because they'd be like, oh, cool, yo, you pulled off all Daredevil, cool, you can't have that on Netflix, you can't have these shows on it. But you know what? Spider-Man's coming through. I'd be down to fucking see a Spider-Man show. I'd be down to see a Spider-Man movie, like 100% through a distribution platform that everybody already has. Especially if they make it that much easier for people to get it. You know, like mm -hmm. I said, imagine if you, the next PlayStation automatically comes with uh, Netflix. Like, it's, it's a part of your, like... Because all those people that are doing what uh, PlayStation Plus or the the streaming service for it, imagine if you just made that Netflix accessible, you automatically get it. You're talking buku dividends. How many more people would then be playing? You know what I'm saying? Like you're you're looking at yeah. stuff on a on a scale where Disney's just like, we got we got Disney Plus. He's like, yeah, but can you play a game? Like, can you? You know, all of a sudden Disney's coming like, hey, we got Kingdom Hearts. Can we can we put that on your platform? Maybe. Maybe not. I'm just, you know, little things, man. This is the way my head works. That's all I'm saying. I don't know, but I'm just saying it's what I would do. That That's a wild idea, and I believe that's what you would do because you are the hardest working man in comics attempting to become the hardest working man in multimedia, right? Uh, so... Hardest if working man in sex toy development, too. Boom, Listen. man. Well, I don't know. Technically, Ron Jeremy still holds that title. I don't think I'll But ever you're coming for him. Wait, please don't say that that <laughs> way. That sounds... <laughs> Ron's a good dude, but uh, not my type. <laughs> on, on that note, we're going to let Victor go. He's got a very busy day today. Uh, you know, we were lucky enough to be graced with his presence, but all th good things come to an end. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us, Victor. We really appreciate it. You are always welcome here on the Comics Pals. I want to give you an opportunity to plug everything you want to plug before you jump off. And as we talked about sex toys, that makes that way funnier. Um, <laughs> guys, you can find me. <laughs> you can find me at Vantage House on all forms of social media, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, definitely check out our Facebook page, uh, facebook.com forward slash Vantage Inhouse. You can catch me every week on Black, White, and Red all over. That's R-E-A-D uh, at comictown.tv on YouTube where we do uh, uh, weekly reviews on books that have come out. Uh, I love it. I absolutely adore doing that. Um, I've actually just started working with Boxland Media. 
Uh, we're going to actually be producing a show uh, for me called Unconventional, where I will be talking about different ways to be in the comic book industry and ways I think that the industry should change to bring on new readers and better engagement. Um, every now and again, you might catch me at Hall of Justice podcast. Um, it's been a minute since I've been on, but um, always looking to come back and, and kick it with Seth Everett. And um, you create comics where I'm in schools, bring in comic book goodness to uh, the students to get them to read more. Uh, but that's pretty much what I'm working on right now. We always got uh, new books coming out through Vantage In-House. Uh, actually, Vantage In-House is on its last three years. I'm just going to tell you that right now. Uh, I got to get as much content out in the next three years as possible before we move on to the next platform that I'll be launching. Uh, you guys want to know what it's called? Yes. This is an exclusive. Yeah. No one knows this. We love spoilers. Okay. It's called Victionary. I'm trying to redefine uh, different literary outlets. And so Victionary is going to be the next platform that I launch. Okay. Mm. So in 2022, we can look forward to Victionary. All right. Sounds awesome. Uh, well, hopefully we can check in with you at that point. Uh, well, way before then, but also at that point to see how how that's going. That's going. Absolutely. All right. So thanks for joining us again. Uh, it's been a pleasure. And make sure you guys go check out what Victor's working on. It's all really awesome. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. You guys have a great day. You hey, too. you too, man. We'll see you in New York. So moving along, we actually have some unfortunate news to announce, which is that Shelly Bond's Black Crown imprint is closing down. So uh, Black Crown was an imprint that Shelly had started at IDW. Um, and, you know, we were definitely champions of it when it was announced in 2017. Uh, she left Vertigo at that time, um, which was in and of itself unfortunate because when you look at what ended up happening with Vertigo, ultimately, the, the relaunch, um, I, for one, think she probably could have been an ally, an asset in that, but that's not the way things played out. Instead, she went and made Black Crown, which um, I personally can say that I didn't read anything from, um, and unfortunately, it seems like that's kind of how a lot of people were because it didn't, it just didn't do as well as it needed to do to stick around. Um, so it was it was around for two years. Uh, there were almost 12 different titles that it released. Uh, most recently, it put out uh, Marilyn Manor, uh, which was, I believe, that's that's a Magdalene Visaggio book, I, I think. Um, I could be wrong. But um, this was what uh, IDW had to say. Working with Shelley Bond on the Black Crown line has been a fantastic experience for everyone involved. Her trademark enthusiasm and fierce dedication is evident in every captivating page of the Black Crown library, which will remain available to intrepid readers for years to come. While the current roster of Black Crown titles have come to a close, we wish Shelley great success on her exciting new adventures like Hey Amateur Comics Anthology, which IDW will proudly serve as the publisher of its softcover edition. So that's pretty much the news there. Um, yeah, it it, it sucks because, um, and I've been recently hearing a lot of rumors with respect to Black Mask sort of going a similar route. Um, uh, so I, I did pick up a couple of these books. Youth and Ots was pretty good. Uh, the art was really solid. Um, House of Muck was uh, one of those darker tales as well that I think was really cool. That was Chris and Chris 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and Punk's Not Dead as well was one that I picked up. Uh, I, I didn't keep up with that one, but uh, that was one that I picked up that, you know, just... I, again, it, it's, it's hard because you have to sort of give them the chance, and that's always the hardest part is, like, a lot of times new... Or a lot of times comics readers won't allow that or they won't provide them the the chance to actually go out and support the book. So um, kudos to you guys if, if you did out there. Um, and if not, uh, that doesn't mean that you can't do it for the next the next pop-up or the next imprint or the next one that comes out because, you know, th- these are where th- these creators go outside of the big two to, to, keep, uh, to keep up with their work. Um, so, yeah, support comics, guys. Please, or these things happen. It it sounds like she's gonna have a, a a decently strong relationship still, given that her in sorry, what was that anthology, Sean? Oh, uh, uh, hey, comics. Th- hey, yeah, hey, hey, amateur. That's right, hey, amateur. Yeah, um, that it sounds like you know, with if I if she if that book is at least staying with IDW. Maybe she still has a fairly strong relationship with them, and she can build up, you know, something again. I hope that that is the case. Yeah. Um, it it just sucks, you know. Even though I didn't buy the books, you know, not everything's gonna be for me. Uh, that doesn't mean that I wasn't, you know, wanting it to succeed and wanting it to grow. Um, but for whatever reason, the books just didn't didn't. Uh, <laughs> you know jump out at me well and the thing too is like that you know this only came around two years ago yeah Yeah. like it's wild that that turnaround you know it was so quick Mm -hmm. happens yeah you uh go ahead marco no it doesn't it happens oh shit happens dude yeah you uh (laughs) really hate to see it this is the kind of thing that uh we don't want to see any well-intended uh movement in this medium which is already uh niche to varying extents uh you you want to see folks thrive in it and this is the kind of thing you really hate to see yeah i think this is particularly unfortunate because it's probably not the last time that we'll have one of these stories crop up like marco said obviously there are other rumors circling around some other publishers that that we um have been bigger supporters of and um you know, I think this kind of speaks to the first time we had one of these big conversations around these pop-up imprints that are that are these indie-focused things, and um, it was Sean who said it, where it's like, you know, I, I, a lot of these are not going to make it, you know? Um, and you think something like this that has IDW behind it, like, has a much better chance of succeeding, but, you know, like, comics are a niche industry, and, like when you get to the more niche stuff within something that's already niche, like it's, it can be tough to find that footing, you know? Um, so to, to Marco's point, yeah. Like if this is, if these are the kind of books that you want to, that you want to see, um, all of us need to do a better job of seeking them out if, if they do speak to you, you know? Yeah. Drop a venom and pick up one of these or just well, buy both. There you go. Oh, with what? In this economy, <laughs> buy both. Fuck off. Get a job. <laughs> drop, I drop don't know. The, Drop the five dollar Venom book and pick up something. Pick up a piece of art. Okay, yeah. the, so the five dollar Venom knocker. book. 
that's the thing, man. You know, everyone has their own tastes and everyone's tastes are varied. And, you know, this is a this is an industry where things are expensive. It's not it's not as simple as, you know, turning your TV on and having to choose between Game of Thrones and, you know, some artsy television show that needs ratings. This is money. Right. And um, what are you going to spend your money on? Are you going to spend it on this thing that you want to see succeed because, you know, in your idealistic nature, you want there to be all these different kinds of books that feed, that represent all these different kinds of people and creators? Or are you going to buy the book that you see on the stands that speaks to you immediately and makes you want to pay for it? You know, it's very complicated. Um, and I think we've all had to make that choice at different points, you know, because dollars are limited. And I definitely know that I have uh, foregone books, even by creators who I like, that I just didn't care about. The premises didn't appeal to me or whatever, but the Avengers book, I I buy it because, you know, it's it's what I like. Um, So it's, I don't know, it's very tough. It's very tough, but the result is that we lose Black Crown. So... Uh, that came off as uh, I, I swear I've heard that sort of well you made this choice and now this is what happened it, it is you know uh, everyone on this podcast but Marco made that choice you know yeah and despite being no, excited absolutely. about it when we talked yeah. about it originally right like oh this is great we want more of this and then none of us showed up for it except, except Marco <clears throat> step up fam <laughs> no, you're right, man. I mean, it's true. Like, Marco's just a- recently, you turned me on to Ahoy. Like, you know, like, I only heard of Ahoy oh, yeah, from dude. Second Coming. And then you're like, oh, yeah, like, I already bought three of their books. It's like, shit, all right, I will too. Fine. Marco's also, like, a millionaire, and he's able to, like, invest in stock in our companies. Be like, oh, yeah, I'll just put a down payment here. I wish, dude. If they were on the stock market, they can get some funding, maybe actually, like, be able to provide better publishing and stuff. Oh, here but we go. They broke. So, uh, moving on. Meanwhile, we have a follow-up to a story from last week. We talked about who the new creative team would be for Batman after Tom King jumps off with uh, 85. Um, And, of course, you know, we knew because Bleeding Cool reported that, you know, it was going to be James Tinian. Phil Casey. So they kind of spoiled that. (laughs) No. Um, And now we know that James Tinian and Tony Daniel will be the creative team that will run from 86 to 100 of Batman. So that's pretty cool. Um, Not surprising because we knew it, but does anyone have any thoughts about this? Can't wait to start reading it 101, yeah. (laughs) Yo. (laughs) Damn, son. There's not going to be a 101, actually. It's going to be a uh, new number one. So Is it really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The, is, that's the, is it, it's going to start with the, with the black Batman, right? That's or is that going to be separate? Bleeding Cool is saying. Oh, okay. I, yeah. I, well, listen, what better issue to start over than 101? Because in college, that's an introduction class. <laughs> uh, I'm going to read a bit of... I'm going to read a bit of... I'm glad James. you thought that was funny. <laughs> I'm going to read a bit of James Tinian's uh, public comments about this um, because he is very excited, unlike Phil. Uh, after seven years of working on Robbins and the characters surrounding Bruce Wayne, 
I want to dig deep into the Bat himself and tell an epic story that pushes him to his absolute limits. I want to tell the sort of Batman stories I grew up loving, to embrace the horror and gothic elegance of Gotham head-on, and dive deep into its greatest villains. I really wish I could even begin to hint at the kind of story we're going to start telling in January, but if we do our jobs, it should be something special. The last time I got to write for Tony Daniel in Gotham City, we were on Batman and Robin Eternal in an era where Bruce Wayne wasn't in the cape and cowl. This time we get all the best and biggest toys in Gotham, and trust me, you're going to see some Batman. Tony and I are going to put Bruce through the ringer, but we're going to do it with lots of cool gadgets, breathtaking action, and the best rogues gallery that has ever existed in the superhero medium. Hey, I'm uh, excited. Sorry, go ahead. I was just say, hey, hey, Phil. You know, uh, maybe since we're not paying up this Batman book, we can go pick up, uh, go pick up an indie book, buddy. Um, we'll see. <laughs> Goddamn Batman fans! I'm excited for James <laughs> because he has been working hard, and he's been in the Batman, you know, sphere for a really long time, as he said, seven years. And he's finally getting his shot. But um, I do have to say, and by all accounts, he's a great guy. All that stuff, that's fantastic. The industry around, the industry is making a big deal out of this. But it's only 14 issues. That's, listen, I'm sitting here thinking that exact same thing. Yeah. James Tinian is getting exactly what James Tinian has always gotten. He's filler. I'm sorry. That's all this is. Well, Kale, that's harsh, man. Take it easy. Put the kids' clothes back get... on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know how. <laughs> I took them off. Somebody help. <laughs> you get James Tinian, and then you're bringing Tony Daniel out of the stable to do a Batman book. This is this is filler. Like, we've seen it over and over and over again. Right. Like, what's the difference between this and if they were to say you know, Pete Tomasi is doing it, right? Sure, yeah. He's a veteran that they roll out when they need that kind of thing. The the interim between big creators on the job. Now, if James gets announced as the writer of Batman number one, that is something that I think is really, really celebratory. But the wind will be out of its sails because he's writing these. So, yeah, he's getting the short end of the stick here. I mean, congratulations. I'm pumped that he's on, on this, but like... My dude, like you were getting short sold. <laughs> that uh, Sean, this he's Dolph Ziggler, basically. Sort of, yeah. But I will say, to be fair, that if I were James, I would feel incredibly happy because this is a guy who is a lifelong Batman fan, who has a Batman tattoo on his arm, you know, who lives and breathes this stuff. So to get the honor of, of, of writing the main title, even though, as I as Kale said, it is, you know, sort of short in the stick, I understand his excitement to have the opportunity because yeah. it is monumental for him and in his life. It's, that's that's fourteen more issues than we've yeah, gotten to do with Batman, it's, so it's all You're damn right. <laughs> there, there's also something to be said where like because it's filler and because it is just fourteen issues, like it has to be a little more condensed and like who gives a shit because it is just the thing before the next thing. So like maybe he'll have some freedom to do something like creative, you know, and like I, I, I hope he does something meaningful with it. Well, I, I assume he's gonna have to tie up loose ends, right? Because of whatever Tom King has sort of laid out. No, so no? Tom King's loose ends will be tied up in Batcat. 
which is oh, his, okay, okay, the, okay. the yeah. spinoff book he's getting now. Oh, so the okay. the fourteen or the 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 sixteen issues that um, James or the I'm sorry the fourteen issues that James is going to get to play with were supposed to be what Batcat is going to end up being. Yeah, it, it's and it, and honestly, it doesn't make any sense to me now why. Tom had to go. If you're just going to put James Tinian on it anyway, why couldn't Tom just finish his run? I, I don't get it. I honestly don't. The sales. They pissed him off. Um, or, or Tom pissed them off. Yeah, and also, like, at the end of the day, for a lot of folks, it doesn't matter whose name is on that title. At the end of the day, it's Batman. It's it's fine and dandy that Tom King will finish uh, his story in Batcat, but relatively speaking, that book's not going to sell anywhere near what Batman sells. Because at the very least, there is a uh, there is a bottom there is a uh, there is a bare minimum of people who will still buy Batman because it's Batman. Yeah, and I think to that point, like if there the contingency of people that care about seeing Tom's book play out will go follow to this new title, which will sell what it's going to sell. And I guess the hope is that with James, they can, uh, new writer, new direction, everybody who hates Tom's run, will drop back on. See, I disagree with what you guys are saying for the simple fact that Tom is a bigger name and the book's sales have not been good. So that goes to show that people aren't just, like, the sales, you can't just expect a certain amount of sales because it's Batman. That didn't work here. Uh, Tom's run turned people off. And it, 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 changed, it forced them to make a change. And I don't think that Tinian's name on the title is enough to bring the sales back up to where you'd, where you'd like them to be. I don't, I, don't think that that's, I don't think that that's going to move the needle at all. Yeah, he like, ain't not a draw, all. baby. But Daniel is. They might think. They might think for a couple issues. They might right. think that King is an anti-draw, and having someone like Tinian will at least bring some people back to like not a respectable number, but a better number. Maybe remains to be seen. Uh, it's it's hard for me to believe that though, but we'll see. Um, Can't wait to start writing now, Batman though, number one. <laughs> <laughs> I would hate your Batman run, dude. I would make him do nothing. <laughs> oh, what do you? What do you mean? Phil's making him a black guy. <laughs> now, there's nothing more in the world. There is nothing more in the world that people want to read than a white guy from Philadelphia writing a black guy. <laughs> Who's never written a comic before? I don't know what the hell you guys well, are talking about. Are you J.J. Abrams' son, or hey, I could be Phil hey. Abrams. <laughs> All right, we are going to jump into our review of Powers of Ten, number five, which we are all super excited to talk about. So, this issue is the penultimate issue of Powers. And I can honestly say that minus the uh, the X the year one thousand uh, stuff, none of it feels close to resolution at all. But we learned a lot of information that we didn't have, 
And so I'm really excited to to dissect this issue. I, and I want to I want to lead with this. Th- this is two issues in a row now where it feels like nothing is actually happening in Powers of 10. And I'm wondering if you guys are you know if uh, unhappy with the pacing of the issues. Uh no, are you? No, I'm not. But I wanted to I <laughs> wanted to ask if that was something that you guys were feeling. Mm, uh I I'm I'm not cuz I mean t- to your point it's like not act action in the sense that it's maybe progressing the story you're sort of just getting like the context and and the rationale behind some of the decisions that hickman has made and and why they make sense in the larger scheme of things but i think that that is all super well one informative and he makes it really interesting because he puts it in the context of individual characters and the way that they contribute to this larger goal like to me it sort of just feels like continual proof that there's this larger goal and larger idea at hand, and these are how he's recruiting these individual people uh, in order to support that that goal and that that end desire. Like, and yo, they brought up my boy Forge, son. I was hyped for that. Um, <laughs> Holy crap, he looks like Freddie Mercury, and I just can't get over it. Like oh, that dude, scene he, of him he's where he's always just had sitting the mustache. with his arms it's so crossed. Cool. He looks like such a badass, but like with the goofiest goddamn haircut. He's got a mullet and a porn yep. stash, yeah. and he looks yep. awesome. That's badass, I, Pete. I don't know what you're talking about, brother. <laughs> um, no, if I'm being frank with you, Sean, I think I like Powers of X more than House of X. Awesome. Wow. Speak to that. Huh. Okay. So Powers of X evokes all the big idea stuff, and it uh, I, I appreciate... Narratively, House of X does take the time to kind of thread the needle, so to speak, in trying to demonstrate how we've gotten from point power of zero to power uh, to point, you know, power of ten or whatever. But it's it's powers where we get all the big picture stuff, whether it's powers of a thousand, powers of a hundred, or whatever. Um, right. And as Marco alluded to, all the context. So, for instance, just for a few examples. The whole part where this this was a very Emma Frost driven issue, which I loved. I I thought that was fantastic, and Hickman does an exemplary job of of laying context of free. If this all feels lived in, because she is very much scarred by previous genocidal events uh, with her being a teacher and everything, because so many children have died, um, which helped uh, inform the person she is. But. Um, we 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 you know we bring up the page we're given this idea about what leadership looks like on Krakoa which is really interesting um we're we're told there's 12 leaders um that's always like a weird council number in a lot of literature um uh, well especially biblical yeah, literature I, I figured you'd uh I I I'm not an expert on the Bible, but I figured that would that would stick out to you. Um, and the thing that's interesting is it's like all seasonal. Um, yeah, which I don't know what that means. Yeah, that was I was very interested by that that categorization of the leaders and what that is supposed to mean. 
and, and all these all these uh, exposition pages are are written like a dossier where it's all all contextual and it's like kind of informative. We're not sure who the author of these are, um, or or what the intended purpose is beyond uh, trying to inform a reader of some backstory. But there's a lot of blacked out names here. Um, we we see Professor X, we see Magneto. We don't know who the third person is there. My thought is it would make sense if it's either Cyclops or um, Moira McTaggart. But we haven't. Seen I think it. it's Moira. Yeah, we. Yeah. we I'm wondering if it's Apocalypse. Could be. Same. Right, but, uh, so get Sean. Go ahead. Go ahead. Nope. Well, go for it. Well, my thought is maybe in winter it's like someone like Apocalypse and someone like Mister Sinister. Like we don't know. Like everything seems to be divided very specifically. So like our our core X Men characters are the Fall. Uh, we don't know anything about the winter. Spring is all Hellfire Club characters. And we don't know anything about summer, and obviously the living organism that is Krakoa and then Cipher make up some kind of special council or something. We don't know. So it's stuff like this that really evokes like the 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 bigger picture of what he's trying to do. And what we don't get in House of X is stuff like you know in the X to the third uh, X you know uh, year one thousand or whatever, where the the phalanx arrive. And, and consume this elder and we have this whole exposition page afterwards about like theoretical physics involving black holes and this is like this is where hickman becomes morrison and this is the shit i'm here for so I, yeah go ahead marco sorry, sorry I, I was just gonna, i because for me what interests me about powers is the way that he brings in like the science aspect of stuff yeah um so like the, the way he's like like right now he, he's he's big into tech shit right so like right now it's all about like wetware and that's all he's been talking about is wetware the way we can sort of recode information by outside of the the standard you know zeros and ones we can we're able to to deviate from that um the black holes thing was interesting just from an information perspective so like that information itself inherently carries mass so to bring the information from like the quantum physics perspective that he's talking about of information and then bring it into uh like a larger physics perspective of just being able to say okay these are wormholes or like these are black holes at the center which is like a giant information crunch database right exactly which is fucking genius and wild uh so like like that that's the shit that i like about this outside of to, to your point phil outside of like what's going on in, in the story otherwise for me, it's very much this where he's telling the story using using the X Men as like players in this overall thing. And we don't know what any of that means yet, but it's also like there's also like greater metaphysical ramifications that comes up in Powers that doesn't really come up in House. It's alluded to in a, in, in House, and you might prefer something like that. But in this one thousand year one thousand thing, I think <laughs> what you you dummies you idiots might prefer it being alluded to. <laughs> I on the other hand, with my powers of tens, supreme knowledge. No, I like it. I like it. Point blank. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you guys might like it alluded to, but I'm a dum dum, and I want to throw it in my face. <laughs> <laughs> um. So a big thing in the last issue was about how, like, these mutants are 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 like their minds are what the real what's, what what constitutes like the real matter, and their bodies are husks. Their souls live on through, like, Cerebro and everything. But here, like, there's a whole thing that Little Nimrod's... <laughs> Little Nimrod sounds like a bad rapper. 
um, where it talks about converting matters uh, to energies, how the phalanx thrives to serve their masters. And uh, they asked about the unexpected price where they will absorb uh, a species, in this case, everyone on Earth, their collective intelligence into theirs. And history, very much like Brainiac, and consciousness of this planet will live on forever. But in doing so, they will feed consuming, uh, they will feed consuming this entire planet and leaving no living thing behind. So in that, they talk about how this, this phalanx absorbs like a collective consciousness of all Earth. But there's no living thing left behind. It, it completely juxtaposes everything Xavier has been doing in this last issue, House. It's This is the stuff that only comes up in Powers. Well, and, and see, that's where I think it's it's not necessarily like a thing of like they're being destroyed, but it, it, they're talking about it from a perspective of, of ascension, right? They're trying to elevate themselves. And in order to elevate themselves, the, uh, this is something that's like you start talking about like when you reorganize um, human societies or systems, right? Where we're going to have to start to realize that the same way that we are comprised of individual cells that collectively organize to create something else, the mentality of collective intelligence has to then organize in this very systematic way so we collectively can ascend right now being individual actors are inefficient and wasting effort as well as time as well as energy right but being able to collectively aggregate those and be a single unified force which is the phalanx in this case right can either be comparable to the phalanx or and what i'm assuming is that they're they're trying to preserve both have their cake and eat it too in terms of uh serve this larger aggregate of consciousness but maintain individuality which i don't think makes any sense because it's they're two dichotomies the question is at what cost right exactly but i think i think the book is telling us that that's not possible that right exactly you can't have one or the you have to have one or the other right and 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 the the prop like everything that you just said works when you're talking about machines and data and stuff like that but when you're talking about people um the individual the individuality of of everyone is what makes life special and worth living right like we're not we're not just data we're not you know we're not just one thing working towards a collective goal um because if if that was if we were if we worked the way the phalanx worked we wouldn't be human and that removes our that strips our humanity. This is the cost of Moira's ninth life, I think. And I think the whole point of it being called like House of X and Powers of X or Powers of Ten is because this is all leading to Moira's tenth life. Well, we're in Moira's tenth life. I fucked in... up. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so, go ahead, Marco. Sorry, Sean. Just to respond to to what to you were saying, but like in the in our the last episode, in the last episode, the last issue, we saw that. Because we can remove people, we can remove people from their individual bodies, right? We can already consider their soul to be that datum, right? Like we can consider it data in the sense that because we can transfer it, and obviously they they explain they they haven't been able to transfer or they haven't tested transferring to like a different husk, but being able to break all of that down, regardless of the humanity, is the fact that that intelligence doesn't necessarily. It, and that's what I'm like reading out of it is that that intelligence doesn't necessarily relate back to a humanity. So I think um, what, I, what I was going to say ultimately is that what we're seeing with the phalanx is like the end result of what 
Professor X is doing with Forge. So and and Sinister. So in 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 terms of what you just said and what you've been saying, Professor X's version of that is having your cake and eating it too, right? Because right, it's creating right, right. this massive database, but we also the mutants also still get to live. They get to live in real time while their consciousness and data is in the cloud, essentially. Um so I think that element of it works for human beings in a way that what the phalanx do doesn't because the phalanx don't have personalities and they're not unique, whereas we are. And so that's where it kind of gets complicated. And I'm excited to see where things go with that. But I have to admit that that I think is the weakest part of this entire event. Really? Yeah, Yeah. that's what that's what I've been kind of waiting to to jump in and say was once you guys were done having that portion of the conversation because to answer Sean's original question um the pacing is still working for me but it's only because so like <laughs> I'm a I'm a Kirkman fan right so I don't mind there being issues where nothing happens as long as I'm getting meaningful context or information that informs the character's actions or emotions and I'm still getting that even in these issues where there's no real forward momentum with the plot. But I totally agree with what you just said, Sean, in terms of like, I I think that the, the future storyline is by far the weakest element and I'm not particularly interested in it because I think it's, it, I feel like it's the, the storyline that's had the least momentum throughout. It's had the least movement throughout. And it, it also, I think in the greater context of knowing that this event isn't self-contained and that it is going to exist to spin off a bunch of other books that are going to continue and have ramifications of these storylines. How could this storyline possibly have any ramifications? I'll tell you how. Uh, and this is this is why, like, even though I said what I said and I totally agree with you, this is the only reason why I'm I'm not like crapping on that element of it because I believe that the X factor here is Moira. So. Moira, they're all you know, Moira's mutant power is that she can live multiple times. So what happens if you upload that into this phalanx database? How does that impact the future of mutants, of humans, of the phalanx? Do mutant powers? go up into the cloud? Can they learn anything that they can use? Will they use that information to go back in time and do something? There are so many questions. Now, I want you guys to notice that in the back of the book, there is a uh, reading order, right? And uh, house two, five, and power six are in red. The red issues have been the most impactful issues of the series so far. House 5, for example, was the one where we learned the resurrection mechanism. Massive stuff, okay? So what the hell is Power 6 going to tell us? Obviously, it's the last issue, but I think it's bigger than that. I think that Power 6 is going to explain how the 1,000-year storyline affects everything else that we've read and are going to read. And I also think it might explain what conflict the X-Men are going to have to deal with in Dawn of X. So, and real quick, just before uh, Phil jumps in here, um, I, I I think, 
my overall feeling about that timeline, given the fact that like I, I am having that experience as a reader, um, I I have enough faith in Hickman and the fact that I've enjoyed everything else so much that I will come to understand what those things mean. Because to the point that Phil made earlier, there are a lot of allegories to what is going on, and I don't I I don't think that he is. I guess what I should say is I believe that he's a good enough storyteller that he wouldn't waste so much time on something that is irrelevant, you know? And I just need to be patient. Right. Yeah, um, he he seems to leave a lot of dialogue that is meant to resurface later. Uh, he teases a lot of things. He foreshadows a lot, if, if you will. Uh, y'all, this was my favorite issue so far. I believe that. That's I, crazy to me. I believe that easily because this this issue. So, for Powers of X, power, sorry, Powers of Ten is actually the comic that I have always wanted to exist from Marvel. Yeah, a, co- a comic book that deals with the the political stuff and the 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 stuff like that that happens that comics never show because they don't have time. Uh, I've always wanted a book that just focuses on like, like, okay, so we never see like uh, uh, something like this, for example, Marvel has a book that they put out every week that shows you what's happening between characters that leads to events that happen later, um, smaller moments that that the Avengers book can't necessarily tackle. That's what Powers is. Powers is the relationships between characters that are going to pay dividends later. Powers is, this is how we got to the point that you're seeing in House of X right now. And I love that. And it, it it's never existed before in a consistent way like this. Um, I think this is a brilliant title. And I completely get why you would like it more, especially you, Phil, um, than House. And I'm bummed more that Powers is ending than that House is ending simply because House, I think I'm enjoying House more, but I think House is something that we can get. Yeah. We're going to yeah, yeah, we're yeah. like we're going to see more house that's spread out in the five or six or seven, however other titles are spawning out of this. That linear thread is going to continue. Well, the big the big picture stuff that they take their time with, like uh, for instance, approaching Emma Frost to discuss her role in all this because she's such an X factor. That is something we wouldn't really get unless it was like a standalone issue, especially because it's like nine pages. Like that's the kind of thing that in like the uh, Avengers title, like that Sean mentioned, right? Like something like that, it would maybe be two pages. You know, it maybe yeah. three pages. But here it's like this is a long conversation and it's just a conversation, you know, and it informs so much. And like the the dialogue that we had between them in the the pre or what? I don't remember if it was the previous house or not, but um, where where they're talking yeah. about the sacrifice that Emma made at the, you know, the, the vote and everything like that. The, this informs why they're so aligned and why they're so lockstep and all this stuff and that the i don't know getting to get that in between stuff is is such a thing that you almost never get in big two superhero comics and i think that that's a big reason why 
as I've gotten older too, like I've struggled to connect with them. You know, is that like the power stuff is what's really missing. Yeah, Phil, I, I'm I'm definitely with you where like this is the power stuff is definitely my my favorite out of it because like f- for me what makes it more real and more palatable is the fact that you actually have ramifications outside of like, you know, we're on a mission or we're doing something or we're trying to like beat this person or do X, Y, Z, right? It's like this makes it feel so lived in that the ramifications come down to geo geopolitics. They come down to like drug trade. They come down to to money. They come down to like things that we can relate with physically outside of stuff that we have to suspend disbelief for. Yeah, and the thing about powers is that I think powers more so than anything else explains why this is unlike any other X-Men book you've ever read. Um and 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 house delivers the moments like that that I mean house delivers the moments where it's like holy shit Magneto is working with Xavier. Holy shit, Xavier looks like the maker. Holy shit, Apocalypse is on Krakoa. Holy shit, they're going to work with Mr. Sinister. It, it, it provides the big moments. The, all the X-Men died, you know? I mean, yeah, the Moira issue. Yeah, it, it, it delivers the moments. It's here in these issues that we see why these aren't your dad's X-Men. These aren't the X-Men. These are mutants. So, yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, I just, I love that. And it's, again, like we've said, it's not something that you typically get. So, um, but I I do want to say, and then I want to take the conversation in a different direction uh, because we've got to get through this. But um, I, I wanted to say that based on the, the titles that we know about from Dawn of X and, sort of what they appear to be about and things like that. I'm not wholly convinced that the political stuff and the slower stuff will go away, Um, especially when you look at who the biggest players within House and Powers have been. Uh, You're talking about characters that don't even have physical powers, like Cypher, right? Doug Ramsey is arguably the most important X-Man because if he doesn't exist... They don't get the relationship with Krokoa. They don't get the language. All of those things are super important. He's a major player. He's going to be in New Mutants. Uh, and that's going to be written by Jonathan Hickman and Ed, Ed Brisson as well, together. Um, Gold Balls, a character I never thought I would even <laughs> be talking about, is extremely important to their process and, and, and how they do things. Um, so I'm not, I'm not willing to... Uh, to say that we'll never see those kinds of things. And I I also want to point out, I think Marauders is a big book to look at. Um, I'm, I'm really excited about Marauders from, from this book. Yeah. What do you think Marauders yeah. is based on this book? So I, I think I know what Marauders is based on this book. Um, and uh, part of that uh, has to do with something that's referenced in, in, in powers. So, in powers, we we see that um, Emma wants a third seat at the at the table. Hell yeah, right? dude! I thought you were gonna take us there. Nice. Yeah. So I think that the person who she wants to sit at the table is actually uh, Kitty Pride. Oh yep. yeah. Yep. What? Yeah. Yep. Uh, I so um, talk me through that. The, I don't get that. Okay. So in the previews for Marauders, 
Uh, Kitty Pride obviously has gone through something. She's not the same. Um, and in one of the preview images, you can see that she has uh, one of them that I'm looking at right now. Actually, she has like a red flower type of thing on her chest. Um, there was another preview image that I saw that I don't I don't know where it is right now. Um, but it also uses red as a motif and and it makes her look different. So I believe that she's going to be the Red Queen. Oh, yeah, it's, as a part I think of it's all, all oh, that's been all but shit. confirmed. Yeah, it's 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 basically confirmed. And I'm yeah. going to read now the Marauders um uh, uh synopsis. Although Mr. Sinister's deadliest minions are usually called the Marauders, a group of heroic mutants will claim that team name for themselves in Marauders. Funded by Emma Frost and the Hellfire Trading Company, this title will follow Captain Kate Pride as she leads a mutant team across the high seas to fight for the mutant cause. Interesting. Uh, this series will also is also set to feature Sebastian Shaw ah. and the reformed inner circle of the Hellfire Club. Oh. So I think that that book is going to be extremely important, and I think that we now know uh, what Kitty Pride's role is going to be as far as the Hellfire Club goes. I'm betting on her being a member. Now, I sent you guys a link in the Google Hangouts conversation that we're on right now. I have never been able to forget this image because it stuck out to me so much, and it was so strange. We talked a little bit about the the the, the quiet uh, the quiet council I think it was called, and who was on it and the names that are blacked out. Well, if you look at this image, I believe that this image gives us at least some of the answers to that question. Uh, in fact, I think that some of these characters are actually positioned exactly how they're going to be in the um, in the actual uh, council. So. I believe that Professor X, Magneto, and Apocalypse, most likely, will be a part of the Autumn Squad. Uh, I believe that Gene, Storm, and I guess Nightcrawler uh, maybe will be Winter or Summer. Uh, Spring, obviously, is going to be, in my mind, uh, Emma Frost, uh, Sebastian, and Kitty Pride, uh, And then Winter... I would assume is going to be Mystique, Exodus, and Mr. Sinister. How does uh, Scott Summers not figure into this? I don't think that that's Scott. Really? I mean, I, I don't. Yeah, I've I've been saying that for a long time. I don't believe that that's that. that I don't. He did, He's not acting like Scott. I don't do you believe want that that's be, him. Sorry. Do you want it to be Scott? No. Damn. Because it's it's not right. <laughs> he's not he's not he's not acting like himself, and I believe that Pre- Professor X knows that because he's the one that did it. I I I'm I'm probably wrong, but I'm convinced of that right now. But given also where the character was in the Bendis years, like you know, in AVX killing Professor X, and then whatever happened in Rosenberg's X Men, like I I I can't imagine. Cyclops being on board with whatever he's got going on here. Scott went from being a militant leader of the X-Men to a lapdog basically overnight. And it doesn't make sense to me. And it could be that Jonathan Hickman just wanted people to be where he wanted them to be and didn't care about um, the continuity of that. But I don't believe that because that just doesn't seem like his bag. In the same, 
in a similar vein, like all of a sudden we're seeing Jean as Marvel Girl again. Like that doesn't doesn't track with her progression at all, but it does if you think about Cerebro, right? And that may be the answer as to Scott as well. The book is telling us that he has made backups of these mutants. So Gene died a really, really long time ago. If the backup that he has for her is of her as Marvel Girl, this makes total sense. Yeah, so I wanted to jump in real quick there. Uh, in one of the informational pages, it called out something that uh, is tying into exactly what Sean said, and it's one of the pages I pulled out to have handy for this conversation. So it says, as previously stated, while there has been no experiments regarding what happens when you combine a mutant mind with a husk that is not their own, it is believed that unless a mutant has some primary or secondary ability to overcome the potential damage such a, such a mismatch would cause, it's likely to be harmful and possibly fatal. It is possible for a telepathic operator to replace their own mind with a previous parentheses legacy version but doing so is incredibly difficult and would most likely require a skilled and experienced operator charles xavier has done this twice my theory is that the two times he has done that could be with gene and cyclops and it's not talking about him i think that that is a very good theory and it would make a lot of sense because those are the two characters who are acting the most out of character the other potential uh, outcome is that Professor X did this to himself to forget something that he needs to not know right now. Um, that that is makes a, a lot of sense, too. That is a thread that we'll have to broach later for sure. But I'm still very intrigued by the fact that no promotional material that I have personally seen for Dawn of X shows Professor X at all. I don't know what's going on, but I don't feel like he will be involved, at least not in the way we've seen him involved. What was but what was the promotional right. image with him, Apocalypse, and Magneto then? What was that for? Right. So that was for incoming. But I'm not sure how to take that because we already know that those three are an, are in an alliance now. But we don't know if that is something that they were showing us to be like this is what's coming or this is what is i have no clue and i don't know enough to speculate that could have been a way to hook um, readers to be like hey if you're not reading this you probably should be you should be right yo i i want to bring up one other thing just because sean called this out i want to say in our last conversation around this book and i wanted to just have a little sean was right moment um I like those on the on the page where we we see forge and all his freddie mercury glory when they're in the, the aquarium setup, uh, this whole posturing of Charles on this page is exactly what you were talking about, Sean. Look at his that, eyebrows. Yeah, look yes. at his fucking eyebrows. Uh, it, it's it's so the Charles that regular readers of the X Men know exists under the surface, and not the cleaned up version that we that mo that most pop culture portrays him as, right? Um, and I, I love this. I love this dialogue because I think this is so, so telling and such a benchmark for, for that kind of reader, which is us. Um, Forge says, okay, taking this a step further, you want me to construct an entirely new system or, or integrate it into the existing one. And then Charles with this sinister ass face 
As you very well know, the only person qualified to make that call is you, Forge. The question is, are you or are you not going to build it for me? And he has this maniacal fucking look on his face, man. Classic professor. And <laughs> it is. It is. And this is, I think, especially given the, the context of, like, I haven't been able to, to stop thinking about this since the, the big Moira issue. Because, like, you look at Hickman choosing to bring Moira back into the fold. And so, like, a huge beat in her story, in her original arc, right, is, like, Charles withholding memories from her and, like, doing all this really shady shit to somebody that he's supposed to care about. And, like, I really think that, like, Hickman is speaking to that reality about the character as he's been written, you know? And, uh, I like, that page just, like sums it up in those three panels so well. Absolutely. I want to I want to also point out that and again correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure I'm not. We've never seen Professor X without his helmet on at any point in the modern like the current storyline. No. Nope. He always nope. has his helmet on. The yep. only yeah. times we've yeah. seen him without it is in the past. I think that yes. that is very important. Why would you walk around with that yep. on all day that's that doesn't seem right to me and of course it's no it cannot be a coincidence that the only other character who does that is the maker and the maker is a character that jonathan hickman dealt with heavily in his ultimate run there has to be a correlation but because we're running out of time i want to pivot and i just want to talk about some of the things that did happen in the issue and of course highlight the art so this is the first appearance of namor who people always forget is also a mutant and dude i, I totally oh. forgot that and then i was just like oh damn. as soon as they cut to the the palace i was like oh shit yeah. <laughs> what a prick huh nah he's fucking cool yeah, dude of course namor's yeah, yeah. a boss namor's namor cool is shit. the original <laughs> anti-villain bro he's the best he sucks suck shit he is an anti-villain Namor's gonna come up and shove his trident right up Professor X's ass, and it's gonna ruin this whole thing. It's gonna be dope as hell. Um, I fucking hate Namor, and I love to it, hate him. I, I, I wanna, I wanna quickly, quickly point out something that um, none of us here would know otherwise. Uh, Namor and Professor X. Uh, it was revealed in a recent comic. I think it was Invaders. I, I was it Invaders. Okay, that um, they have a history they were trying i forget what it was they were trying to work towards they were doing something together and it fell through and their relationship ended and it's not labeled as a house of of x tie-in but that did happen so i'm wondering if that's you know if if that's supposed to be something that will play into this later were they part were they part of the illuminati together yes Uh, yes the original one yeah y'all uh In the Polygon article, it says that over in Invaders, we learned that Xavier and Namor once searched the world for other mutants, Mm. but had a falling out. And that's all it says. Okay, there you go. Well, like, I read this, and, like, Xavier just created a fucking pocket dimension, like, uh, nation for mutants. And Namor was like, you're not for real. Right. I wonder what Namor thinks now in the modern, you know, in, like, House of X time. What does Namor think about what Professor X has done? The other thing I wanted to point out was that nothing positive 
ever happens when Magneto and Professor X are aligned. Like, I don't think that this is going to end well. Because when you think about it, what, what are they most known for? Like, as a unit. House of M. Uh, Onslaught. Mm-hmm. And House of M. <laughs> Nothing good. Um, yeah. I want to point out, I think this visitation is the modern timeline because this is the speech that Xavier gives to bring all the villain, the ex-villains into Krakoa. Yeah, but wasn't that like issue two? No, that was like, that wasn't that, that last, last issue. issue. Oh, well, shit. Yeah. Okay, yeah, you're right. And he's in his suit and helmet. I see. Yeah, yeah. You might, so, you might be right about that. <laughs> I, I oh. hope he teams up with Cyclops and just gives him the what for. Oh, Kale, you are you are a prejudiced man. You do not support mutant. Uh, you don't you don't support the mutant society. This has been an oppressed. That's not people. true. Well, you want the founders of Krakoa to be given punches. Well, Emma, Emma, and and Magneto are speaking, and she she's flabbergasted at the idea of a government. But I think the government is already established in house, right? Yeah, but I think like the, it already is a thing. I think the events are separate that they uh, have, right? Am I crazy? Like uh, the, the them recruiting Emma is different from when Xavier broadcasts his message to humanity and to mutants. Yeah, yeah. So I think what Phil is saying, and this is my understanding, is that where we're at, like this issue of powers was like a flashback to those events from those events. Gotcha. So, like, right. yeah, where we're at sense. now, Emma's already aligned. This was them coming to her for the first time and getting all the Hellfire Club in. Got like, sure. into yeah. the yeah. fold. Yeah. So, let's talk about the art. Because I think that um, the art in this issue is brilliant. And as, as it has been in every issue of both House and Powers. Uh, but this is actually the swan song for Marta Gracia, who was not able to complete the series because of his surgery and his sickness. Um, R.B. Silva is the, uh, he's doing the line work on this um, and this entire Powers run. And I think he's done a tremendous job. His was not a name that I paid much attention to before, but I definitely will be going forward. Like he is the god of eyebrows, number one. <laughs> I was going to say his comedic timing on that Emma page was tremendous. Absolutely. Um, and I just, I just love the way that this book looks the, the year 1000 stuff, even though I didn't care so much for what happens, that portion is gorgeous, right? So good. Incredible stuff. And obviously a lot of that is the colors, right? Which of course is what Gracia is offering the book, but still you don't get this without what RB Silva is putting down. Right, just, yeah. Um, it's one you couldn't have one without the other. Just quickly, uh, the Polygon mention uh, article mentions a lot of uh, uh, talk about like uh, the the sort of ranking of angels that they sort of connect it to the way the um, the the AI works. But ba- basically, my point here is just that the the way the art is on on these x 1000 pages is is very sort of revelation and you know uh, biblical in that sort of way 
very uh, sort of angelic and and gold and also destruction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I definitely see that as well. Does anyone have anything else to say about the art? Any other highlights for you? What is there to say? I mean, what what has it been? It's been ten issues with him, uh, nine or ten, obviously. Um, it's just it's been phenomenal. It's been it's been a it's been a real gold standard for twenty nineteen. Yeah, I, I I don't really feel like there's much else to say beyond that. It's been an absolute treat, and um, yeah, I mean it's it's definitely going to be a huge loss to not have Gracia on the last the last two issues. But um, uh, I hope that that whoever who do we know who's who's filling that gap? Uh, it's me I again. Don't. All right. So, <laughs> Wait till you see my I... line work because that's all it is. <laughs> the colors so that concerns me (laughs) 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 i'm gonna draw lines on lines baby yeah i'm not i'm not sure who's replacing him Uh, either way yeah i'm sure that whoever is gonna step up to the plate will will do a a good enough job to stick the landing here um because again the line work is so strong but uh it is a shame because i think that the art team has done like as as much praise as we heap on Hickman for the plotting of all this and having that grander vision. Like, I I think it's worked as well as it has because the art has been so solid and so consistent. Like, I don't think there's been an issue where there was weak art. You know, all of the big moments are like so memorable um, because they they are presented in a way where like. Even small moments feel like they have weight and that there's there's gravity. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so that's gonna do it for our review. Ooh, Sean, sorry. Oh, sorry. Just just quickly while we have uh, because it's the the end of the issue. The Krakoan on the last two pages. Oh yeah. Uh, is uh, I am not ashamed of what I am, and I guess that's the. Uh, is that Xavier? That'll be the the House of X. Hmm. The house. Uh, one, I think. Yeah, yeah. That's the next house issue. I am not ashamed of what I am. Uh, the Krakoan for the final issue, uh, or the the next one, just reads House of X. Uh, and Polygon, the guy's writing for Polygon, says uh, they're calling this as the X is 10, and it re- uh, refers to Moira. Okay. Yeah. She's the missing link. She's the only character that, you know, we haven't seen in a while who... She's been off the board for so long. She has and not appeared in the modern uh, story at all. No. And that's, uh, that one is the, the next uh, red strip on the reading order, too, yep. so... Yep. I thought it was so. good. I thought it stood for, uh, that's it for uh, Forge. da 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 <laughs> Okay. Great. Thanks. All right. So Man. we God, will be I love back. This fucking book, you guys. Absolutely, we will be back with a rev- another review for uh, this series. Next week, we'll be covering House of X number six, the last issue in that run. Uh, we'll also be reviewing the Joker movie. So <laughs> if you guys are excited <laughs> for that, <laughs> yes, indeed. God uh, damn well, you. <laughs> we will also be at New York Comic Con, so there's a ton of stuff to look forward to be coming so next week. Tired. I'm already tired. Uh, 
But it's going to be a blast, and we hope to share that experience with you guys in some form or fashion. And we thank you, as always, for listening to this podcast. Now, of course, we've got tons of different stuff for you guys to check out. Book clubs, interviews, all that jazz that you can find wherever we are. If you want us on another podcast hosting platform, we are at the Comics Pals all over. If you can't find us, let us know and we'll get there. We are at the Comics Pals wherever your social media is sold. And of course, you can write to us at the Comics Pals at gmail.com. Our YouTube is about to be popping because we are going to have interviews coming from New York Comic Con. And we do have interviews from Keystone if you haven't seen them, including my conversation with Victor Dandridge, which you can find all at youtube.com slash the Comics Pals. Speaking of Victor Dandridge, you can find... Uh, his stuff all over the internet at Vantage in-house. That is his brand. If you type that in on Google or wherever else you type stuff in, you're going to find Victor Dandridge. Uh, pick up The Trouble with Love. Look for Never Too Late. Look for the Kickstarter, which is going to launch whenever it launches, he says, November. So check that out. And we will have a link to both of those titles in the description. So go look for them. Go Let's snag some... a free comic. Yeah, absolutely. Those are some plugs. Pete. Thank you guys so much for joining us here in another episode of The Comics Pals. Uh, please, if you want to connect with me, I'm at loud underscore Pete on Twitter and Instagram. Hope to see you at New York Comic Con. Make sure you stop by and grab a sticker from us. we got a bunch we're trying to get rid of, so we hope we'll see you there. Uh, if you want to get more content from me, you can find my work over at uh, Lupots.com, where I host their weekly Nintendo podcast, The Podcast, as well as the Patreon-exclusive show, After Dark, where we talk about stuff besides video games. So if you want to hear some more stuff from me, go check that stuff out. All right, Kale. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Toto Into. That's T O T O I N T O W. Uh, you can find me and my work uh, at kaleward.com. That's C A L E W A R D.com. Uh, the podcast I do with my wife, Gone Global. Uh, we'll have a new episode this week where we will interview none other than, hold on, let me check my notes. Me? Macro Kunaluda? Oh, I hear he has garbage to say. That's oh, interesting. Uh, but we will be uh, talking to uh, Marco and his girlfriend uh, Mariana about oh. uh, their uh, the their separate cultures and um, what's weird about the things between them. And uh, I don't know. I hope it gets deep, and maybe we'll break them up. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> Fuck! Whoa! <laughs> Lofty goals. We'll see but, where it goes. Uh, if anyone can do it, it's me and my wife. <laughs> Okay. I don't even know how to take that. Uh, Marco? God, that's dark, man. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Mr. Marco Enomoto. Um, I will be releasing a short one-page comic uh, that I did for Miranda for our anniversary. Um, that's going to be on my anniversary, so uh, the second week of October. We'll also, I'll also be dropping um, at the end of October uh, a, a two-page story that I did with the Comic Jam. Go check them out. And go read indie comics. Very cool. Uh, Phil? Yo, go check out that Silver Surfer uh, Requiem book club we just dropped last week uh, by yes. J. Michael Straczynski. I hosted it. Sean and Pete were on it. It was a great conversation. Uh, otherwise, you can follow me on all social media platforms at CyborgBebop. Awesome. As for me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram only at Sean Soapbox. Hit me up to talk about whatever you're into right now. I am into House and Powers. And uh, rereading 
the lead up to Secret Wars for something that we're going to be doing really soon. All Jonathan Hickman, all the time, over here. And with that, we're the Comics Pal signing off. Take care, guys. See you next week. Bye. <laughs>